Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent here at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly. Right now, we're meeting at Shields in Southfield, and that's on 10 Mile and Telegraph. And this group's about networking and doing deals, folks. This ain't your grandma's Rhea. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And RDI is also this podcast where... We continue the real estate conversation with interesting people for your entertainment and hopefully education. If you're ever interested in attending any of the local meetings, go ahead and check us out at renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash investors, or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You'll find us there everywhere. All right, legal disclaimer. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue us. All right. Show quote of the week. This is where I try and pick a quote that sets a tone for the podcast. And hopefully your week as you're driving around doing whatever you're doing. And hopefully I picked a good one. This one is from Anthony Bourdain. The journey is part of the experience an expression of seriousness of one's intent. One doesn't take the A train to Mecca. From Anthony Bourdain. And right now today, ladies and gentlemen, I have Mr. Hassan Imran. He started investing when he was 18 with $1,000 and he thought he was going to day trade to 1 million. I think we all know how that ended up, but he ended up losing uh, 50% in the first week. It forced him to rethink how he would retire early and he spent the next three to four years in college reading and learning how he could become an investor. By 23, it saved $20,000 from his corporate job and purchased his first house from the MLS. It's in 2016. He learned the idea of wholesaling and buying deals at great prices. And three years later, now he's done more deals and is shifting his focus to more commercial mixed use and apartment deals, building systems um, on the single family residence lead generation side. So he started in 2016 with his first MLS deal. In 2017, he purchased four properties off-market, funded them pri- uh, privately, and wholesaled his first deal. Also, when he quit his job, congratulations, sir. 2018, he wholesaled 14 properties. And if you ever if you follow him on Instagram, which you should, he backpacked and traveled for five months. Young man, exploring the world. 2019, he wholesaled his first apartment complex. He purchased a few more houses and his first mixed-use parcel. He is also looking to hire his first round of employees and team and his goals. By the end of 2019, they have 50 more rental doors. All right. So go check him out. He's actively looking for mixed use and apartment deals. Is that anywhere in Michigan or where, where are we looking? Uh, mainly in Metro Detroit. Yeah. Metro Detroit. All right. Metro Detroit. So you can email him Hassan, H-A-S-S-A-N at brighterestates.com. This will be in the show notes. Welcome, Hassan. Welcome on the podcast, hey, sir. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. So you, you were like the people's choice. Oh. I had uh, <laughs> Carson McGuire was the main one, but I, I had about a half dozen people say, you need to have Hassan on and talk about uh, some of the commercial stuff you're doing. We're going to get to that. That's Sweet. the hook, folks. If you don't know what the meaning is, that's the hook right there <laughs> to pull you into the rest of the rest of the podcast. But I want to go back and start immigrant 
family moving okay. moving to America. We were talking about how you're looking to hire someone, and your mother stepped up and was like, "That's not happening. I'll go ahead and do this stuff for <laughs> you." Right, like immigrant mentality. But I, I want to know a little bit more about the story of your your family too. We don't have to go too deep if you don't want, but I think this this story is as American as fuck, right? And as old as time. Oh, yeah. Right? Things aren't going well somewhere. Shit sucks. You need to go somewhere else, right? This is old as human beings are old. And that part always sucks because it requires enormous sacrifice. And then hopefully, if you picked the right place and you worked hard enough and you were lucky enough, you would find the quote-unquote promised land or brighter life or better future for your your family so and i don't get too many immigrant families i know we're all a couple generations from immigration but kind of once you're assimilated you're american let's face it yeah. right yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why we have the term immigrant mentality right and then once you're americanized i think we we lose a lot of that but how did your family come tell me about the story of your family yeah so i my brother and i so two siblings we were born in pakistan um, so in like a city called Lahore and, um, basically from there at the age of seven, my dad was a professor and then he wanted to move to America, Canada, you know, just like a Western society, Western country. So he moved, we moved to Canada first and he went from being a professor to basically being a waiter at a restaurant. So like took that sacrifice and then he paid for the that, ticket. That is exactly what I'm talking about. That not just all the money you have to spend. I'm sure your father's a proud man. That you know somebody loves their family when they gotta eat that kind of shit sandwich, yeah. right? Yeah. You go from esteemed professor to I gotta eat this and don't I'm not talking shit about Jenners. We love you and we need you, right? But a lot of people won't step back to go forward. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just no, I just no, I just love good. that, right? So he comes in now he's a yeah. janitor in Canada. Yeah. So no, he, he, he became a waiter. So he was like a waiter, you know, took a huge pay cut and a huge standard of living kind of and cut. Um, and then, so he saves for three, four months. He pays for the plane tickets for my mom, myself and my brother. So we come in Man, that's 2000, hardcore. Yeah. yeah, to Toronto. And so we lived there for like seven, eight years. Uh, my mom's like working at a factory. My dad's, you know, then moved from waiter to truck driver. So then he's doing that. We're kind of saving up some money. Um, he gets his, uh, he gets another degree, moves to Michigan, gets a degree. Wait, wait. So he's doing all that and he just, he was getting a degree too. Because he knew that he needed to like rebrand quote unquote his his resume. So he goes ahead, comes to Wayne state, gets a, gets a master's. He's got two masters in engineering and stuff. And then, uh, essentially he was building hotels or helping, helping on the construction side. And, um, now he runs his own consulting business, right? And he just helps owners build holiday inns, Marriott's, everything. He put them up in like six, eight months, and they go from there. So when did you guys? Okay, when did you guys move here? Uh, two thousand eight. We moved to Bloomfield. Yeah. Man, your dad got busy. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That that man got busy. <laughs> Holy shit! I, I should have brought him. You I know. Like, all right, next time we gotta have your dad. Uh, oh my god, man. Well, what what is everybody else's excuse? I'm feeling bad over here. I was just talking about some of my goals and how little time I have to to get to them. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna rethink my my whining over here. That's not a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's super big saver. Didn't spend any money. You know, we drove like a. We had one car. Just like an old 92 Corolla. It was like rusted and everything. But, um, you know, 
It's like that immigrant mentality. I suspect he probably didn't complain much either, did he? No. 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 Or he probably did in his head, but he did He did say, didn't yeah. open his mouth, yeah. right? Yeah. There, I think there was my uncle, when I went back home, he was telling me there was one time in like the mid-2000s when he was kind of bummed out because we were taking – it was like a rough time, right? So he was like, oh, maybe I should move back to Pakistan. And then his brother was like, no, you, you made it too far. You can't come back now. So like no matter how strong you are, you still need that support circle to, to say, hey, look, you're on the right path. Just keep going. Well, we all have moments of doubt, right? Yeah. That's part of what it means to be to be human. In fact, I think if, if you're not setting big enough goals, you're not trying to live a big enough life, and you, you're not likely to have doubts, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But if you're taking on some big stuff, you're going to have doubts. I haven't taken anything that big. That's big. Like, oh, I'm going to move my whole family from another country to an entirely different culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to I'm going to go back to being a waiter and, and somehow manage to go back to school again. So, well, that's pretty cool. What was that? What was that like for for you? How old were you when you left Pakistan? Seven. So you remember? Yeah, yeah. What was I moved around a lot as a kid? Yeah, but. It's, I think it's different when you go everywhere American, right? I was American military, yeah. American military dependent. My father was in the Navy. So yeah, I was, I was put into a bunch of different cultures, but I always think that's different. Kind of like when, it, when, when Romans were Roman and you went into wherever you went in the, it's not exactly the same thing. I think what, what was that like for you in Pakistan, then in Canada, then in America? Oh yeah. It was a wild experience. I think it was more. Um, so I think we moved like eight times before the time I was 18. So like just moving schools. Um, and when I, I remember when I moved to Toronto, I couldn't really speak English. So there was a oh, huge barrier. God, that sucks. Like, I couldn't even make friends or anything. So it was just that, that part was hard. Moving oh from my Toronto God. to us was much easier because by then I knew, okay, here's how, you know, yeah, you can speak the language yeah, now. Yeah, Hi, yeah. I'm a son. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I remember when we first moved, it was just so hard, but you know, you, you, you adapt. So, um, yeah, you adapt. I remember what that's like getting your fucking ass kicked every time you go to a new school. Nobody <laughs> likes you. you gotta make friends. I was the big guy too. So you always had to, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think people who don't move around a lot necessarily know all that is involved in it to a new school, new friends, outsider, different culture. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very, I, I hate to say I got used to it. I didn't really got, I got accustomed to it. I wouldn't say used to it, but it's a very strange experience always being an outsider in somebody else's, I hate to say it like land or something. I don't really know how to, yeah. you're, you're kind of an outsider everywhere you go a yeah. little bit. And yeah. And the, the coolest part is now I look back at it and that has taught me so many lessons because I'm like, okay, there's never really one circle that I was always around. It was just whoever I would meet, whoever I would become friends with and, you know, kind of just develop a relationship. So now that I'm older, it's much easier to kind of, you know, make new friends, approach people, just, just do what I have to do to get stuff done. Yeah. I, I know a hard life or hard beginnings doesn't, it doesn't work for everyone, but it is amazing how many people come from challenging and difficult backgrounds who actually make, I think there's actually, as you were pointing out, a doesn't feel like it at the time. Jordan Peterson actually has his base says sometimes the best thing for you is a thing you would never pick. Yeah. In fact, obviously sometimes the best thing for you is the thing that you would never pick in a million years. And you're most likely to think it's the worst and dumbest idea you ever had, but that's exactly <laughs> the thing to take you to the place you want to go. And I think difficulty and challenges in life, hard childhoods, mm-hmm. businesses, moving country, like 
that creates a lot of hardship and it does kind of, it's kind of like training, right? Like it, it accustoms you to, so, to additional hardship, which when then you go out in your own business, probably didn't seem as bad. Well, yeah. so let's fast forward a little bit. I'll go back. But when you start, what was your reaction when you lost your 50% of your, of your money, like that little, little hardship oh, yeah, in comparison yeah. to some of the other stuff you had endured in your life. Yeah, right. Sure. So, yeah. I mean, before I tell you that, I just want to give a quick shout out to my parents though. Cause you know, even though we were immigrants, it never made me feel like we weren't, we didn't have enough. It was always, there was always enough. Um, but you know, for them, they weren't buying anything, but they were just kind of feeding us and clothing us and all that stuff. So definitely I never felt a lot of the hardships that they felt. So, but, um, yeah, when I was 18, someone gifted me a thousand dollars and you know that was everything to me in the world and so on my 18th birthday i went to charles schwab i opened up a brokerage account and i was like yep this is this is it for me so um i started trading had no idea what i was doing i was like yep i'll just pick i picked in yahoo finance the top 10 losers because i was my theory was that the ones that have gone down the most that day would probably tick up the next day for some reason. That was my analysis. So did you read that in a book or was that just no, like Hassan, just, just yeah, 18 year old young man going, hmm. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to beat the market. With Can these market. losers lose more or are they going to come back up? <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause some of them, you know, they've gone down 80%. So I was like, there's no way this is cheap. So, um, later I learned that price is what you pay, but value is what you get. Right. Yeah. And that's like Warren Buffett or Charlie, Charlie Munger said that, um, you know how many but, people have a – I was just talking to Jay about that. Uh-huh. There's a difference between cheap and valuable. Yeah. And people often confuse, well, this one's cheaper. Yeah. Well, that one's more valuable. Yeah. Like I think it's almost like a human thing. Like you got to untwist it in your brain a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah, you just nailed it right there. Like, oops, yeah, that, cheap that was, is not valuable. Exactly. Yeah. So so I lost that and then then I was like, all right, well, I'm not – I haven't figured this out. So – I switched my major in college at Oakland to um, finance and then just started studying as much as I could on trading, investing, everything like that. And and then slowly that transitioned somehow into this. So. Somehow into this? Probably. <laughs> so when did your dad like start helping build hotels? Did that have some impact on it? Like the, the um, fact that he was involved in real estate or how did you, yeah, he, how did you stumble into the real estate part of it? So actually super clutch clutch move on his part again i went to him once i had that 20 grand saved um and i was like hey can i invest this into one of the hotels and Ooh, i like blank, it he because i was like hey that'll be the easiest thing for me right and then i have an asset that i you know i don't really have to do much he you know they're building it i'll just pitch in he's like no <laughs> go do your own thing boy yep exactly he was like go go buy our warehouse and i still remember this was in march 2016 he said that we had that conversation on the phone sometime and he was like yeah you should you know try to go buy something you know learn learn it figure it out do it so again that was one of those things where i was like crap you know this is gonna be harder but yeah it was gonna let you piggyback on his know, uh so he might later on once you make it right but like no you're gonna go out and figure it out first yeah. i'll help you then Yep. But you're going to go do it. Yep. Yeah. So, I like that, especially with helicopter parents, right? Yeah. Probably not too many immigrant helicopter parents. Yeah. They know what it takes to succeed in this yeah. world. Yeah, They're so like, they're... that's not going to cut it, boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to go out and figure out this. Look what I did from 2008 till yeah. now. You're like, damn, all right, it's got a point. 
So he kicked you back out into the wild. Yeah. So I spent the, so March, 2016, I started looking and then I just started looking at warehouses. I started off just trying to buy something commercial and I was like, okay, I could buy a warehouse and rent out the space in there. Realized I didn't have the circle of competence to really underwrite and, and lease that stuff out yet. Dude, that's so valuable. You know how stupid and arrogant I was when I was young? Man, knowing what you don't know and admitting it is like, that's a huge step, right? So you're like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Yeah, because I learned that when I lost the 50%. Yeah. And I was like, well, I that was that was stupid. That's the best $500 you ever spent right there. Yeah. That's yeah. cheap lesson, yeah. right? Now, now, now I'm like, okay, 500 bucks, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so... Uh, then, then we, I ended up closing on my first house September. So it took like six, seven months, five, seven months, somewhere in there, but just researching, making that transition, just bought the first house. And, uh, I had a lot of people that I started connecting with, you know, um, I went on the bigger pockets forum, found a local meetup, found out about you guys, um, that John told me about John Wilcox and, and all those people, but essentially just got integrated into the group started learning found out about wholesaling found out about how to find off-market deal with what made you what made you reach out to other because i i think that's key too but i want to i want to know what kind of how you came to the conclusion what made you decide to start reaching out to other people i didn't know what i was doing and so on bigger pockets there was a meetup that some guy had set up and it was at and then John Wilcox had said in, in the forum that, Hey, we could do it at my house. So he had a house in Madison Heights. And so that was the first person I really ever met who was involved in investing. And so then he was like, Hey, uh, go to these different meetups like the Oakland Ria and, and, and your renegades and all of that stuff. So that's when I got introduced to it all. So I think that's such a great idea. Not only do you get to meet a lot of new people, but you get to see what's possible. And oh, if yeah. you stick around, you get to see who's serious too. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I did it. Like when I was like, okay, I need to learn this thing, this wholesaling thing. I just, you go and you go check out all these meetings and you pay attention to who's kicking ass. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. you're like, okay, that's the guy I need to go. I need to go learn from Steve cause he's kicking ass. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's absolutely key. And by the way, John Wilcox and Scott Wilcox, Wilcox brothers been on this podcast. So if you're curious, just go back. I think they're like 60 back. They're yeah. a little deep in there, but yeah. they're super cool people. And I'm not surprised at all how much they would help you out too. Cause oh, yeah. that's just how they are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so then I, the, the house that John had bought, like, okay, it needed some work, but I had bought my house in Oak Park at that point, like one of those brick ranches for like 87 grand or something like that. Just turnkey. And he had, bought his for like 25 grand or 30 grand. So I was like, wait a minute, you can get these things for real cheap if they have some trouble. So then the next question was, how do you find the ones that have trouble? So that led to the, to the whole motivated sellers thing and all of that. And that's what led me to Steve Landau's and your, your podcast series and all of that stuff. So, and then just reading, reading everything, um, and understanding how to underwrite stuff and, and analyze stuff. I don't really approach, myself as like a real estate investor i'm just like hey i want to be an investor um and i think that there's certain risk adjusted returns that you can look for so real estate i can change the value of an asset and that can show up in in a month or two you can also do that in equities like stocks and stuff but that could take up to five ten years because you can still find something undervalued there but you can't get it reappraised or you can't get it um 
because there's a whole market involved there. So, but those things do still change. If you're able to identify the right ones, they'll change over five or 10 years. But in, in real estate, I could do it over six months, right? So depending on where you are in your life, um, there's different ways to go about it. But for, for me at the age of 23, 24, and now 26, I was like, okay, this is the best way. So. Real estate is a people sport. Yeah. This country is set up for real estate. I tell people this all the time. Like, If you go out and get a W-2 job, they punish you. If you go out, even sales, high earner sales, right? Yeah. Tax is bad. Then you just look at the tax code and where do you get all the massive breaks? Oh, yeah. Investing in businesses and primarily real estate. It's like 80% real estate. They'll give you the loans. They'll fudge up the money. They'll let you, they'll let you make payments over to like, and there's a level for everyone involved in this, right? All the way down to $20,000 flea bag houses, all the way up to billions of dollars. So wherever you're at in this, in this ocean of investing, there's a place for you, at least in America, they really want you to invest and buy in real estate and yeah. businesses yeah. here. Yeah. And if you do, you're absolutely right. You're like in the eye, right? You're, you are the investor. You're injecting mm-hmm. the capital into the economy. And that's exactly what they want you to do. Yeah. And then if you're not those, they want you to spend it so other people can get it. Right. Which is why the, all the consumer, if that's fine, let's just make sure we get it to the right people to reinvest again. So that whether you agree with it or not, that's how this damn thing is set yeah. up. Right. Yeah. So if you understand these rules, Real estate is the people's sport. You barely moved here and you're already doing it, right? Like, where else can you do that kind of shit? Yeah. No. Oh, my God. And the oh, rules are all set up for it. If you know oh, the yeah. rules, you're like, yeah, look at – you're 26. We're going to get to the your your mixed-use deal, but you you, you co-called and wholesaled yeah. an apartment, right? Like, yeah. I don't know how many places you can do that in, right? Yeah. So just understand how it works, too. It's all, yeah, yeah, opportunities. You are exposed to the opportunities. Like, if you want to see something – like, come on, you've got the chance. Man. Yeah, it's, it's right here, right yeah. in front of you. And you can take a whack at it. All right, so you're like, okay, man, look at all these cheap houses. I got to get, I got to, I got to, how do you buy these cheap houses, John? Mm-hmm. So where did you go from there? So then I start coming to Renegades. Um, I start going to like the Oakland Ria, start networking with people. You know, I showed you that spreadsheet that we have or that I made to kind of like network with a person a week and all that, buy people lunch. And so started reaching out to a few people every week. So you made a networking plan. Yeah. Okay. What what was, if you don't mind sharing, share your networking plan with people. I'm just. So essentially the goal was um, I would want to meet with at least one person a week during lunch or or dinner and just talk to them. Um, What was the qualification for this person? How did you identify them? Yeah. So nowadays it's a lot different, but before it was basically anyone involved in real estate, anyone who had a deal, bought a deal, sold a deal. I think that makes sense. So really wide in the beginning, right? Let's just have as many conversations as we can have. Okay. Cause it's that whole thing of like, you don't know what you don't know. And so you don't know what else is out there. Um, So, and, and even today I still don't know what I don't know, but um, in the beginning, it was a really wide net. So anyone who was involved in real estate, and even if that was like just distant family members, but a lot of people were from from our inner circle of, of investors and um, just reaching out to them saying, hey, I want to talk to you. I wanna, I'll buy you some lunch or whatever you need, and we'll just chat. How did so, it change over time? Uh, so now it's a lot more focused um, in terms of because now I have more precision on where I want to go. And so I'm like, okay, these are the people I need to connect with. And so there's different circles that I need to be around to kind of connect with those individuals. Um, and so nowadays it's more like, okay, how do I 
touch contact asset managers or syndicators or people who are now on the next level of where I am now. So trying to touch base with those people is, is the networking part. So started wide, then kind of figured out who you were interested in, what you were interested in, and then went a little bit more narrow. Yeah. All right. Are you still doing that now? Is that still yeah. part of the plan? Yeah. Okay. Every week. So you've been running this plan now for a three couple years, years yeah. three years. Okay. Seems to be working. That's a good plan. That's why I was wondering, that's a very intentional plan that going out to the meetings, I think is like step one, yeah. right? Yeah. Step one, when you're at the meeting is to identify people that you might be able to either help learn from or do business with. Yeah. Right. So, and then you got more intentional. Yeah. All right. So how did you get, um, Obviously, you started wholesaling houses at some point, right? Um, let's talk about that. How did you get started doing that? What did you do? Yeah. How did you do it? Let's talk about the mistakes, too, because there's always mistakes. Oh, yeah. There's always marketing mistakes. <laughs> so I remember the first house. So I never did direct mail because I was like, I don't have enough money for it, even though I technically did. But I just was, you know, that immigrant mentality. I was going to spend 50 cents a postcard when I could call for, like, for free. So, um so I start calling, and I remember the first guy. So you're cold calling these people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So wait, I heard cold calling doesn't work, Hassan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know how many times I fucking hear that, especially from realtors. It literally drives me cold call, man. I can't tell if it doesn't work, man. Yeah. So, no, you just suck. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> you got to talk to a lot of people. You but, do. You, know, you do. Even if you're the worst, you can find someone. You can find if you talk to a thousand people, you'll find one for sure. Yeah. For well, sure. also, really bad to do that. But. What kind of mistake can you make cold calling? Let yeah. me tell you about the marketing mistakes you can make. You send out ten thousand dollars in emails and get, or in postcards and get nothing. Yeah. Or the magazines I went and bought ten thousand dollar you know advertisements in that got me like cold calling. You're just wasting time if you suck, right? Yeah. Yep, <laughs> How much yep, time yep. do you have? Yeah. You know, you start spending like real marketing money and make a mistake, which is easy to do. I'm raising my hand here. I think everybody's done it. Yeah. So it's not just immigrant mentality. It's also a good way to kill your money. Yeah. Yep. If you don't have enough seed money too, it might set you back a minute. True. I True. tell everybody six months of marketing money is when you start. Mm-hmm. When you got enough for whatever campaign to mail the same list at least once a month for six months, that's when you start doing your direct mail because you can survive yeah. your, your mistakes at yeah. that point. Right. Like I remember one time we, when we mail merged, we, we got it wrong and like yeah. three quarters and went to the wrong yeah, address. The like, wrong names the- it seems like how could that possibly happen? But you know, shit happens, man. Yeah. That was an expensive mistake. <laughs> <laughs> we got bailed out cause we got one deal that kind of made up for it, but like it was, yeah. That would that did not that did not go well. You can't do that cold calling. Yeah. But and that, that's the other thing about real estate is that in certain ways real estate is pretty forgiving over time. You know, especially even on the wholesale side, and and even if you're just buying rentals, you could kind of f up the first one, and you'll still you're, you're not going to die as long as it's cash flowing. You're not you're, you're good. It's okay. You made a mistake. You keep going. Um, yeah, even in the crash, they didn't go to zero. A yeah. couple of them flirted with it in Detroit, yeah. like around yeah. the low thousands. <laughs> so that's still not zero. That's <laughs> still not zero. And it came back. That's actually something that I tell a lot of people, and a lot of them been on the podcast. And, and you know, like the people who I know, people who bought at the worst time, wrote like yeah. two thousand to two thousand five, wrote out the whole thing. Yeah. And then like 15, 15, 17, 15 to 17 years and then still sold for good profit and made cash flow the entire time. So you're absolutely right. It's forgiving. Over, over time, 
I, you can't do that with stocks. Stock yeah. goes to zero. Company goes out of business. You're Wait 15 right. years, still out of business. Yeah, still. <laughs> still broke. Still doesn't work. So that, that is an excellent, excellent point. It is. It can be very forgiving. Could be, yeah. If you're stupid, it, you can hurt yourself yeah. anywhere. Yeah. But. You have to be aware of the risk. You know, it's an investment. At the end of the day, it's an, it's an investment. Um, but yeah, so I cold called the first person. So the first person that I actually picked up. I was just way too anxious. I don't, I just, I don't even remember what I said to them, but it wasn't constructive at all. We didn't even talk about that. I was like, why are you calling me, man? <laughs> you didn't even talk about well, it. Like, hey, uh, what's up? Yeah. Like, I like calling random people. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about your house at all, but hey. So, and then, um, the, the first person I actually had a conversation with about the house, I talked to them, um, and we had this whole I, – what I was doing was I was leaving voicemails, right? So this one person calls me back from the voicemail. He's like, hey, I'd be interested. We have this five, ten-minute conversation. I'm like, what work does it need? All of this. So now I have it kind of down. But even on that conversation, I forgot to ask the address. So, <laughs> so, so, this is real life though. Like yeah, so, I've done that too. You're like, damn so it. Like, or their name. I'm like, yeah. shit. How did I not ask their name? Yeah, like, so oh, my God. <laughs> Not not like I have a CRM where it pops up and you know and you know what's happening, but you know in the beginning all you got is a piece of paper or a Google Doc and and a cell phone, so that was the beginning of it. You know, just everyone makes those mistakes. You beginnings are messy. I like beginnings actually. Yeah. A lot of people don't like them, but when, when you get to make you know when do you get to make a big mess and then clean it up in real life very often? Yeah. You know, beginnings yeah. where you get to do that. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. So you're cold calling all these guys. Yeah. So. So then finally I kind of get a rhythm for it and I remember I would just do it every day, six to eight PM after work. And um Dude, you nailed it right there. Those times, if you're listening, mm-hmm. that's gold. Yeah. I can tell you get the most pickups between eight AM and, and ten AM and then four thirty to eight PM. Mm-hmm. When I was doing my wholesaling hardcore, I did all my dialing four thirty to eight PM because that's when most people pick up the phones the most. So there's a little nugget right there, cold callers, right? Yep. Dial 8 to 10 and then 4.30. Well, dial all day if you don't have fucking anything. But once you get busy, <laughs> I'm just talking like once you're busy, busy, he just gave you a little good nugget right there. Yeah, call so, 60. Yeah. Yep. yeah. No, it works. And I some days I just wanted to make sure I got the two hours in. So some days, you know, I am I would be late and I would just call until 9 p.m. And the last person that would pick up, I would be like, oh, I hope this guy's not pissed off. But no one was ever really pissed off. They'd be like, no. All right, man. And, and in fact, a lot of people gave me props for it. They were like, hey, I like what you're doing. You well, you're calling, uh, yeah. yeah. You're calling a bunch of investors too, weren't you? So, or, at times, yeah. 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 So it was like an absentee list, the same thing everyone else has. And, you know, I, I still use that list, man. I bought it three years ago. I'm still finding deals on there. Dude, two thirds of all wholesale deals I did are absentee owner deals. Yeah. That like, there's just a well of suffering in absentee yeah. ownerism yeah, yeah. that you can always tap. I yeah. think that's going to be true a thousand years from now. There's going to be a landlord. Complaining yep. about someone yep. not paying and he's ready to sell right now. Exactly. Yep. So you, you got to stay in front of them. Um, so my whole intention was not really to start wholesaling, but it was just, hey, I want to, I remember in 2016, Mike, or 2017, I was like, okay, I want to get to 10, 10 doors. I want to get 10 houses. And uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to start buying these, <laughs> figured out how to raise private money. And so I was like basically the equivalent to burring a house. So we would refinance. We'll tell people what, but that, what that is just in case they don't know. Yeah. So. so as long as you can be into a house for under 
70 to 80% of the value of the house with your purchase and your repairs. So for example, it's a hundred thousand bucks is the value. If you can be all in for 80 grand, you can refinance that 80 grand back out, right? With a bank and you, you can put that loan on there and then the renter will pay for your mortgage. And, uh, so Burr is buy, rehab, yeah. refinance, repeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. And renting too, I think. Renting. Yeah. 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 Renting. Sorry. But <laughs> buy, rehab, Rent refinance. There yep. we go. Nailed yeah, it. Repeat. Yep. <laughs> repeat. Yep. Um, so that was, that was it. So then you could essentially have infinite returns forever as long as you could just find really good deals. So the whole game, name of the game was, Hey, how do you find really good deals? And even by 2016, what most people are telling me is, Oh, there's a crash coming. But I was like, okay, as long as I buy them at like 60% or 70% of the value, it's all good. Um, so I started looking for those deals. Well, I, hold on. Let me slow down. You were also looking for cash flow deals, which I think is key. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. for the be- bird to work. Yeah. It, like, th- and that's how you write out the bad times. Yeah. yeah. Because so flipping is the most high risk thing you can do because mm-hmm. it requires the market conditions to be similar to when you started. When you're doing the buy, fix, rent, refinance, repeat thing, yeah. that you're, it's a whole different market. Yeah they're always going to be renters and there's a rental market and it's not very often a rental market will lose 50% of its rental value. So you're very likely to be able to cover whatever your debt obligations Mm -hmm. are. If you, if you did it right, that's what he's, that's what he's talking about here. It's some powerful shit. So, so my, my whole thing was my personal criteria was if I can be all in for 80 and it rents for 1300, I'm, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Um, that was, that was my personal objective. And now it's changed because the market's changed and you got to adapt. But what was that, your, uh, um, cash on cash or ROI on that? How were you figuring that? What was yeah. there a goal you were looking for? Yeah, or I was always nowadays, I try to keep my portfolio under 60% LTV. Um, that's pretty aggressive. So, I like it. And then with that, I want 15% returns. Yeah. Um, but, that's really aggressive. I love it. But there's some mixtures in there now because, you know, fortunately I have some cash flows coming in so I can invest those into different sorts of assets where there's maybe more risk and maybe more returns and certain things that, that we're doing differently. But, um, in the beginning it was just, Hey, just buy a house, refinance it, be all in 80 K and those four or five in Oak Park, those really were the, were the beginning of everything. Oak Park is great for that kind of thing yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, that's a good place to do it, it in. Is. So Madison Heights too. There's the, yeah. It's a little harder to do today, but you could still do it. Like it's still possible to yeah. go out and and get those kind of deals yeah, if you yeah. search hard. I just I yeah. just did another one this yep. year, so it's still possible. It's still possible. Yeah. It, it, yeah, the market's hot. And you got to work a little harder, but what are you gonna do? Sit at home, twiddle your thumbs, right? Yeah. You gotta. It, it'll it'll always switch to something. So okay, I I like where this is going, man. This is good. This is good. <laughs> All the things I love: cold calling, yeah. <laughs> aggression. But you weren't trying to wholesale. You're just trying to find a deal. Yeah. How did you, did you like trip into wholesaling? Like, I don't really want this one. Or? I found a deal that I was going to buy and we found out that it was just way more rehab than I thought at first. So then it became, okay, let's, let's wholesale this one. And it was a three bedroom. My first wholesale deal, well, I had it under contract for 25 grand in Madison Heights, three bedroom house. Damn. Um, on a, on a crawl space, but it, it had like some, some shit. So still, yeah, it can have some shit at yeah. 25 grand. It could have a lot of shit. Three bedroom on a crawl. Yeah. There could be a lot wrong with that. And that'd be a deal. But there's like uh, different things like the, the physical obsolescence of it, the functional obsolescence of it. Like it just was, it was a 
kind of look like a hack job. The three bedrooms are in weird spaces and stuff like that. So that impacts not really – I don't think it's a big deal for rentals, but just you know, one day when you're going to sell it, it's going to be a little bit harder. So someone said, look – and I and I wanted to take that job on just to do the bigger rehab, just to learn. Um, and even my first rehab, like it was a 30 grand house, Oak Park, flooded, all of that stuff. But that one taught me a lot. So I would say if you're if you're buying your first few, just just do a hard one. It's all good. And get <laughs> I like it. it. Just do a hard one right yeah. off the bat. Yeah, and it's, just get it for really cheap. You know, so so if you do f up, it's okay. You can sell it, um, and and still recoup all your money. But you know why? If you do the hard one first, then everything else would be so easy for you. Um, so. So then I basically, then I got my first one in Berkeley, which was a duplex and then just kind of adding on to those and started to snowball. And, uh, then I left the country for a few months and then I came back and you know, all of that. All cold calling, right? Yeah, everything was cold calling. Everything was cold yeah. calling. How many, so I like your, your two hour discipline too. I know if I beat it to death on the podcast, but the greatest thing I learned working with Steve, mm-hmm. Steve Lando was the discipline of three hours of prospecting yeah. a day. And prospecting is different than just responding to phone call, like postcards, like where you actively try and reach out to people. You go into the database Mm -hmm. of people and you start reaching out to them, trying to get you to try to get them to sell you a house cheap. Right. And that's been the greatest thing. Even when I made the switch to being an agent, the prospecting style changed and I had to do things a lot differently, but the discipline of prospecting. That's why you said, I, I just want to make sure I got my two hours in every yeah. day. I'm like, yeah, that's the discipline right there. Yeah. Right. Yep. It, it, you got to send postcards every month and, or you got to prospect every day. Right. I prefer like, if you're going to do it, do both, like do some form of advertising and prospecting. So you get the benefits of all of them. But like that hunting, I think is so important in wholesaling. Cause yeah. if you don't kill today, if you don't hunt today, you don't eat tomorrow. Right. That's really the bottom line. Exactly. And yeah. you can control it. Like you, you can't make people call you off your postcard. I don't care how great you get your marketing. Like they, whether they, some people just throw everything away, Yeah, but they might answer the phone and sell you something. Right. Exactly. Like I, I just love that, that sort and, of thing. And for, for example, that, that house in Oak park that was flooded, I no direct mailer would have gotten to that guy because this, it was not an absentee owner. The guy's house was still listed as his primary residence. Dude, see, but he wasn't living there. So, and because it was flooded, he was just gone. He was living with his mom. And, um, yeah, you were fishing where no one else was so fishing. No yeah. Just was, you, just the sun casting, catching big ass fish. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a janky deal because I, the guy didn't have a car. So I went to pick him up and he asked me to buy That's him. how you do it. And I remember when, and I took my friend with me because it was my first time meeting with someone partially shady. And so I was like, dude, just come with me. I don't know what's about to go down. <laughs> I don't and want to get an axe murder. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, uh, and when we got to the house, he didn't have the keys. We had to sneak in through the window. Oh man. Yeah. And, this is rough. And, and when I dropped him off, he was like, Hey man, I think I can do it, but I need you to buy me a carton of cigarettes or something. And I bought those for him. And I was like, God, I hope this deal goes through. And, uh, and at the closing table, he asked me for a carton of milk. You know, just weird stuff that, that was so strange. out of the box. But I was like, man, I just gave you 30 grand. <laughs> you could afford milk, but here you go. <laughs> yeah. Did you buy it for I, it? I didn't buy the milk. I bought the cigarettes. Just I bought the cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but it's stuff like that. Like, you got to do what you got to do to just get the deal done, whatever it is. Because you can't think about it like, here's my job. You have to think about it as, hey, I have to do whatever I have to do just to make this work. Well, I think people think on on the wholesale side, especially with me, 
because of my persona. Like you have to be like this hard person. Mm-hmm. Really what you have to be to be a good wholesaler is be extremely compassionate. Because you have to be able to understand the seller and their and their situation and be extremely flexible and mm-hmm. how you you get the deal done. And if you can't be even if it's weird, even if they anger you, even like you have to have some sort of compassion for the situation or you can't get past it. You're not gonna get it you're not gonna get the rapport yeah. and you're not gonna get the same amount of success otherwise. So right. contrary to popular belief. Generally, going hard is not the best way to do it. You know, yeah, you can't hard sell every single person. And no. my natural personality is not that of a hard seller, but I've learned to adopt my personality to the person I'm talking to. So usually, when you're cold calling, there's going to be just a handful of personalities that you're going to speak with. You know, there's like four main ones. So some people are very um, descriptive in their in their conversation about their house. So they're very like, oh, the walls are nice white color or nice gray color. And then you know that they're very uh, emotional, I guess, yep. about the purchase. So then you approach it like that. Whereas someone else will be like, they'll pick up and they'll be like, what? And so, you, so then you know <laughs> that's always you, fun, right? You got to go straight to the chase because you know this person is not trying to just talk. So that's a different kind of person. So there's only three or four different kinds of people. And so if you just curate your conversation to how they're speaking with you, just the first word when they pick up, you should be able to tell, okay, here's the kind of person I'm talking to. So you have a plan too. I like this. You have a plan. Okay. They, I got the high C engineer type. I know what to do. I got the emotional type. I know what yeah. to do. Yeah. I got the angry Kurt type a get yeah. to the fucking point. Like, what yeah. are you calling me? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> trying to give you money. Sell me your house. <laughs> yeah. And I've said that stuff and I don't know where I learned. I think Grant Cardone talked about it and one of his things, but a deal that I did in Madison Heights, another one, um, I cold called them, left them a message and said, Hey, if you don't call me back, I'm going to just ship it to you. I'm going to just ship. It's going to be at your house tomorrow. And so, and then I just hung up. And so then the guy called me back. He was like, what? No, no, he didn't even call me back. He picked up the voicemail because it was a home line and he just picked up the phone. He was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'm going to ship you an offer. So you, you want to sell it? And he's like, well, okay. Yeah. I'll come. I'll come <laughs> and so I, was, and I bought that house. And I was Dude, like, that's savage that right work? there. And you know, I'm too scared to use it again. Cause I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to mess it up. But you know, like it's just, everyone's different. You can't approach everything the same. And you can't, um, uh, what I don't know what the right word is, but like portray your opinion of what's right and wrong onto every person yeah, that you're talking yeah. to because there's so many different kinds of people. Well, and and a Kellerism, um, they were. I'm trying to see if I get this Kellerism right. That, uh, their perspective is their reality, mm-hmm. so you have to join their reality. They say it better, but it's one of those. Yeah. Keller cult things. It's actually right, right? Like yeah. their perception of their reality is the only thing they're seeing. Yeah. So the odds of you changing that are a lot lower than you just okay. Yeah. I'm going to join this reality because now we can communicate in your yeah. reality, yeah, right? Exactly. So exactly, you have to adapt. So, um, no, that that was the cold calling part, and so I got a few houses, and and uh, then I felt a little bit comfortable, and I was like, okay, what do I want to do next? And at that point, I was still working at my full time job, so so I just you know decided to quit there. Yeah, let's talk about how you decided to quit. This is really yeah. important. It's one of the most common questions. Yeah, I get. How do I quit my job? When do I quit my job? Should I quit my job? Yeah, right. This is very very common. So I would love to get your perspective on 
how you decided to quit and actually how you did quit too. I think that's valuable for people. So everyone's circumstances are different. You have to basically analyze, Hey, do I have kids, other responsibilities? What's the worst case scenario for me? I was 23. I was like, okay, the worst case scenario is I stay with my parents and I find another job. Best case scenario is that I can take off to the moon and, and I'd never look back. So I would rather risk it at that age. And that's what other people, frankly, at my work, I, w- I would talk to them about it. And they were like, Hey, you should just leave, man. Like you, you should do this full time. And so, so that's what I did. But I think the way you analyze it, if you can leave or not is if you have enough money just to cover your basic expenses, you're just wasting your time at a full time job. Um, because now you can at least take that risk. And, and the thing that's holding you back inside is just, just a, um, limiting, limiting belief. It's not, it's not actuality. So, and the, especially if you don't have kids, if you're like in your twenties or early thirties and you don't have, uh, that big of a responsibility, you're going to regret it. We were talking about before the podcast, humans yeah. don't analyze risk very well. Yeah. Right. I lost it all twice and I can tell you. I was, I'm not afraid of it anymore. I kind of secretly wish for it. Not that I want it to actually happen, Mm -hmm. but that when that kind of thing happens, it's not as bad as you thought it was in your head. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like even, and I went through some pretty terrible shit because I made some pretty stupid mistakes, but the fear you have in your head, this monster, even in the worst case scenario as trite as it sounds now from somebody I haven't gone is not that it wasn't that I remember thinking that like when I was getting through and it was bad, I was like, you know, this is pretty terrible, but I thought it'd be way worse, Yeah, which is a funny thing to think, but that's because I'd built up this fear of failure in my head to be this monster that don't get me wrong. It's still a monster, but it's way smaller than you than in reality than you, you actually think it is. And you're bad at, you're bad at judging risk. Yeah. What is the, what is the risk of sticking with a corporation who's not going to take care of you, especially if you're not socking any money away? I think you nailed it right there. If you're only paying your bills and there's nothing else left over and you don't have fucking boats and ski dudes and cabins and you're fucking up. Yeah. You're dead. What are you going to do there? Yeah. yeah. What can you, what you can go in your life. Let me tell you, it's a lot easier to make more money than it is to reduce your expenses at a certain point. That's true. It seems counterintuitive, yep. but how low can you really get your expenses at a certain point? Yeah. That shit doesn't work. You got to bail on that. I think the people who get trapped are the ones who are like, man, I got good money. I got good benefits. I get three weeks of vacation a year. I really want to do this thing. But they got two car payments, a house payment, a boat payment, a, a cabin up north payment. And really, they've kind of shackled themselves to it at that point, right? Like, I don't know. And I remember there was this one um, general manager. He He was running our division. And the guy owned like enough properties, oh, probably around a hundred. And then he was also a director at this huge company. So in my head, I was like, I was like, why, why is this guy still here? And I never got to ask him the question directly, but I think a lot of it is comfort. You know, you're just so comfortable in your life by that point, and you can't really think of something different. So you're like, okay, I'll just keep going as is. But. You know, it, usually that's not the best scenario. And even when it goes to, in terms of assessing risk, as a human being, your when your brain will look at the negatives, it's going to overweight those as opposed to the positives. Yes. That's evolutionary. And that, yeah. there's a reason for that. Yeah. 
Exactly. Because yeah, you, but real estate's gonna not going to yeah. kill you. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So if you make a hundred grand, it's going to feel good, but it's not going to hurt as much. If you you know if you lose a hundred grand, it's going to hurt way more than the pleasure it will feel from making a hundred grand. So that you have to be cognizant of that, even though that's an, it's a false idea. It's it's just it's in you somehow. Yeah, but, it's how we're made, man. Yeah, yeah, it's built. It's right in there. Yeah, it's right. I went so Gina and I went. We just went up north to Renegade Savage Getaway. And she got me, I never do this, but she talked me into going on this damn thing that went upside down and then spun. And like, I swear to God, my puckered asshole was the only thing keeping me in that seat. And I was laughing the whole time because the whole time my body was completely panicking. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're not supposed to be upside down. You're not supposed to be spinning. This shit ain't right. And I was just laughing at my, cause my whole body is actually like, what the hell are you doing? And it was just so funny to me. I'm completely safe. And locked into this thing, nothing bad's gonna happen. Yeah. Right. And this one looks—it's not one of those janky ones. We we're into the fair. It was like one of those good ones. You're like, you know, you're fine. Mm-hmm. But I did not feel fine the entire time. <laughs> I felt like this yeah. all gonna—I'm gonna die. But it absolutely was not true. And I was thinking about that the whole time, and I was laughing. She was like, "Why are you laughing?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I am terrified, and nothing bad is gonna happen to me." And my body was panicking. It was just hilarious to me how it was. And that's one example of how I was perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. Nothing bad was gonna happen. But my entire body was like, "What are you doing?" Yeah. I didn't even get it on again. I should have gone on one more time just to do it. I'm like, "Once is good." Once, <laughs> once is good. Yeah. Even though nothing happened to me, nothing bad whatsoever. I'm like, "Once is good." Yeah. <laughs> it's how we're made, man. Your body doesn't always like, how do you think you got to this day? Not going, is that thing really going to eat me? No, you fucking ran. Yeah. The bush, the bush moved and you bailed. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. But that doesn't happen in, in business. There's yeah. no, You're not gonna die. no, there, no, no yeah. there's no tiger going to eat you. Yeah. You know, it's just your yeah. ego. Yeah. Then the worst, like you said, the worst case scenario is rarely the worst case. Scenario. Yeah. It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. I built that thing up in my head to be like a tsunami of death yeah. and destruction. I was going to be <laughs> over forever. And it's just going to, things were going to be eating my body, just be bleach bones in the sand. And it was nothing like that. Nothing whatsoever. So don't, don't fight the monsters in your head. No, yeah. They're not real. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, even if I could play the devil's advocate viewpoint, Maybe it's not the right time to quit your job. I, I don't know if you're if you're working and you really enjoy that job. Or That's an excellent point. It pays you a crap ton of money, and you're willing to. I had this one guy who every two weeks he would not get a direct deposit, but he would get a physical check, and he would take that physical check to the bank every two weeks and say, "Was it worth it for me these two weeks?" Right, and so you you got to think about it, and if you love the job, man, just. Real estate doesn't have to be full time. You can passively do it, yes, and still, you know, live a wonderful, wonderful way. Um, One of my really good friends been on the podcast. He hasn't come to RDI in a while. Is David Deska? He's an appraiser. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't. He's not. A, he he likes being an appraiser. Yeah. He likes hanging out with his family, but he still buys, fixes real estate, and his family, a big one. They just part of their family is buy a crap house, fix it up over time, wait till the market's good. Sell it, roll that shit into a bigger crap. Now they got like a house they just built. It's all badass. Like nice. there's a lot of ways to do this thing. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's not one. It's not black and white. No, there's not yeah. one thing. So if you love your job, I don't think you should not invest in real estate, but no, it does not have to consume your life. Yeah, exactly. No, right? And and even like the fact that we were talking about wholesaling and buying properties at 70% discounts and all of that stuff. If you are making a lot of money at your full-time job, you can – 
you can accept lower rates of return because you have more of a pool of money. Boom. Right? So you don't need to quit that job and then go find all of the stuff off market. I just hated working. It just wasn't me. So that was, that was a different part of it. But you know, if, if you enjoy it and you're making good money, you don't, it doesn't have to be like that. No. If it's soul destroying though. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be miserable and just, yeah, yeah. It, it's hard to make good decisions in soul destroying positions. Yeah. Right. Um, John Prine has a quote out of a song. Um, uh, dirty windows and broken hearts make life difficult to see. That's why today and tomorrow always seem the same to me, right? If you're in that position, the thing you might need to do is actually just change your job to something you can handle better just so you can see a little better too. Yeah. Cause when you're in that position, shit isn't as clear as it could be. Yeah. Right? You're, you're legitimately suffering in something that's soul destroying and Exactly. You got responsibilities and like that, that's a whole different situation. You know, yeah. you, I, sometimes you might just need a new job before you even consider getting into real estate or some, some other yeah. business. Yeah, maybe you right? take, take a lower position or something, get paid less, but now you have more time. Yes. It doesn't, it's yeah. not black and white. So yeah. Don't, so. don't, don't discount your emotional discomfort. Don't be a pussy about it. Right. Yeah. But you know what I'm talking about? If it's really destroying your life and your relationship and how you, you can't have a positive attitude about anything, yeah. you're going to take that how are you going to make a good decision that way? You, you got to get someplace a little better, get your shit straight. Right. And then, then, okay, I got a few breaths. <laughs> what do I want to do? All right. Now I can think a little bit more clearly. This is from someone who's made a fair number of bad decisions under pressure, right. Or, or in doing things I didn't want to do, which I no longer do anymore. Thank Jesus. So <laughs> no, thank you. But so that maybe that's not you, but, I know what I know what it's like. At least I have a little taste of it. I didn't do it very long. I know people who've done it for years, and I won't mention names or anything. But it's quite obviously soul destroying. Yeah, and you get numb to it. That's yeah. the whole thing: is that you will get numb to it. So you just have to be aware of that. Yeah. Um, and we got sidetracked. But here's a cool thing I want to get to. Not very many people get a little momentum and succeed in something, and then stop. And pivot, but I, I suspect this was also part of the plan. Would that be correct? Because at some point you said, I guess there was a reward coming, right? Like I've been doing well, I'm kicking ass. And this is the kind of lifestyle part of it. We always get on the podcast and we talk about the things you can do in real estate and all that. And I, I want to emphasize a little bit more lifestyle too, because there's a lot of flavors in this yeah. business, right? Yeah. So you decided to go on some pretty badass trips. I followed you on Instagram as you're traveling all over the world. I was like, all right, that's some badass shit right there. Like, oh, that's some badass shit. You're like disappeared for like four or five months, right? Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that because I think that's cool. How did you decide to do it? Okay. And then let's talk about all the places you went and some of the experiences you had because why are we doing real estate, right? Yeah. Like are we just doing it like Silas Marner to go bury our gold out in the backyard and yeah. like count it in the middle of the night when nobody's watching us? Yeah. Or or we have reasons for doing these things. Exactly. I, I don't it's also interconnected in terms of business lifestyle, all of that stuff. Um, and once I had got some momentum, I didn't that year. I actually didn't even get to 10 doors. I, I had like six, but I was like, I'm happy. I felt a little bit burnt out. I was like, you know, I'm tired of making all these cold calls. I want to think about what I want to do. So, so I told my full-time people or the full-time job. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to leave. Actually, they, 
Actually, wait. Let me reiterate. <laughs> they they asked me to move to a plant, and I was like, no way. That is going to consume my time, yeah. and you know, no way. So then when I left that, I was like, okay, well, this is actually the perfect time to go travel. That's a good point. So um, when I came back, I realized the momentum that I had lost because I didn't consider that fact before. Uh, now I'm cognizant of it, so I only leave for a month at a time, whereas before I left for like five months – um, it's funny. I'm going to interrupt a little bit. You can go for a month. Nine days is my limit. Nice. I've tested this multiple times. At day 10, I go pretty wild, especially if I go up north. <laughs> I'm just like, I'll just hunt fish for the rest of my life. Here's, here's, here's my whole point on it. So my tri- the trip, I always go solo. So I try not to take people with me because I want to be alone. Um, and I try to do stuff that is very just – just it's not like a vacation i'm not just sitting at a resort um so it's like in nine months ago went to vietnam did the motorbike thing across the country never rode that so badass man but that it was an actual like spiritual experience so doing stuff like that really gives me motivation to come back and work so i can go on more odd trips um so this is like a little fuel for you too yeah all right. See, this is this is cool, right? Everybody's a little different. Well, tell me about Vietnam, though, and your experiences. Like, so that not too many people actually dream these things and go do them too. And I don't think it cost you a lot to. You, that's that's my point. So, so let's cheap. talk about this, man. Okay. So, I think it sounds like, oh my God, how do you go do that? You must yeah. have made like all these. Other, none of this stuff is as expensive as you think it is, depending yeah. on how you do it. It was so cheap. Okay, so I went for a month. The tickets will be variable because you got to figure out when you're going to fly. If you fly during non-seasonal times, like non-vacation times, you're going to get a great deal. I spent for a whole month probably seven, eight hundred bucks, um, living like a king. So I arrived at the north of the country and decided that I was going to buy a motorcycle and ride it to the south of the country via the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So you didn't even plan that ahead of time? You just got there and like, okay, motorcycle, I, Ho Chi Minh Trail, here I come. You know what it was is I've intended to do it when i got there because i knew it was a thing people were doing it but then i was kind of like oh, i've never ridden a motorcycle before i don't want to get hurt i don't have insurance because i left my job and all this stuff but then i met this uh guy from new jersey who was also there named sam and sam was like dude i'm about to go buy my bike you want to come and i was like all right i'll come and then he bought his bike and i was like i'll oh, just buy it too so, <laughs> so you made that salesman day yeah <laughs> like, yes he went home and high-fived his wife it was a great deal i bought the motorcycle for 120 bucks so it was dirt cheap like you know i can't even get an uber ride to the airport for like i'll get an uber ride for like 90 bucks to the airport so um then we started writing down, or I started writing down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is, uh, if you know anything about the Vietnam War, that's where they were smuggling weapons to the north from, from Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon, to, to the north of Hanoi. And so they were doing a lot of guerrilla warfare to beat the Americans. And essentially, they were smuggling these weapons. So now if you go down these roads, they're now paved, but you'll see like tanks in the ground. You'll see really odd stuff where you're like, whoa. Um, and it's just like a part of it is getting really outside your comfort zone to see how far you can go. Like, I, of course I don't want to hit a mine and explode, but you know, how far can I go and still be safe and just experience some odd stuff. And like the bike broke down in the mountains. It was like 10 PM. It took me to a mechanic's place. I slept at the mechanic's house. He cooked me fish. Dude, that's awesome. Like just weird stuff that I was like, and, and that goes 
again into being uncomfortable. So like if I can, for me, if I can ride a bike across Vietnam, how can I not make some cold calls? That's a good point, right? Do other worse, scarier shit. And then what, what is doing on a, spend a couple of hours on a phone? It's nothing. It's, yeah. It's not, not hard. And plus it's fun. Like, you're just, well, I think people don't realize how people are people everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. I think they yeah. sometimes think like people are different over here. Yeah. Now I understand cultures are different, yeah. but that people are the same. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're jealous. They're friendly. They're kind. Yeah. They're, they're mean. Like, but generally, almost everywhere strangers are treated well. Yeah. That was my experience traveling the entire world. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. and when I was doing it, everybody loved Americans. I don't know if that was true. So everywhere I went, like when I went to Italy, they loved Americans. Cause like yeah. you kicked out the Nazis, especially the old ones. And I used to go hiking with the boy scouts and stuff. And we would see tanks and like plane, like it was weird. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I don't think it was near what you probably saw on the Ho Chi Minh Trail because I think they dropped more bombs on Vietnam than all all bombs dropped. So it was probably way, way like yeah. – Yeah, there's still mines there. You got people to see crazy die. stuff. Yeah, it's still killing people. It the is. war's over a long – it's yeah. still killing yeah. people. Yeah. So that that must have been a, a little surreal, right? Yeah. Like, like, wait a second. This yeah. is this, this happened too. Yeah. Everybody treats you pretty well though as you're driving. Oh, yeah. yeah. So they were so accommodating. Yeah. Like, you know, my, my bike's broken down. They took me like – 40 minutes, this guy hitched my bike to his bike with bungee cords, and we just rode up this mountain for 40 minutes until we got to a mechanic. So it was like, it showed me like a lot of love for like these strangers that they don't know. And so it kind of humbles you in certain ways. Cause you're like, okay, wait, life is bigger than just making money. Yes. Even though, you know, I don't want to waste this opportunity that I have living in America, but I also don't want to waste, uh, the other opportunities of life where you can kind of experience and see different people and see how, how they live. So that was very important. One of the greatest things, and this is completely unintentional and my parent parents did it just because there was no business in Coos Bay, but my dad joined the Navy yeah. and get me to fuck out of Coos Bay, Oregon and yeah. seeing other cultures and other possibilities around the world yeah. is one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Yeah. Just the things I got to see and experience before I was even at the age of 18, while I think of myself as American, because I think I am, I don't think you can mix it any other way. I also think of myself from the world. And I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't moved around and lived so many places and seen so many things before the age of 18. Mm -hmm. So I I wasn't trapped in just one way of experiencing the world or, or looking at the world. People are the same everywhere, but cultures are very different, very, very, very different, yeah. right? Different expectations, yeah. right? What's right, what's wrong. So I wasn't stuck in one paradigm. I could look at things from lots of different ways, gone to English school. That, that's very valuable. It is. With the internet, I think you can get a little bit more than you used to, but I don't think there's a substitute for going and experiencing it yourself yeah. like you did, yeah. right? And it's dirt cheap. It's dirt cheap. Like I was paying like six bucks a night for a bungalow on a beach. Like, how can you beat that? That's like, it's like, I love Vietnamese food too. I love pho. Like I love pho. (laughs) It's one of the great, uh, if you don't know what pho is, it's going to sound boring, but it's a beef broth soup. And you're like, Oh, beef broth soup. I'm talking, it's the best fucking beef broth soup you ever had (laughs) in your life. Literally the best. And they drop a bunch of fresh vegetables in it. 
and then they literally drop really thinly sliced different whole bunch of weird meats too. They're all great. Don't don't worry about it. Yeah. Just eat them. It's legit. It's legit. <laughs> yeah, and then you drop it in raw, and it cooks in like almost boiling beef broth. It's so good. If you haven't tried it, go find some place. I would love to go actually eat it in Vietnam. I bet it's even better than the stuff you can get here, and I love it here. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was like, I was looking through, I was like, fuck yeah, he's eating great shit. I bet he is. You know? <laughs> it's like, oh man, that looks amazing. So all your beach pictures. So you spent a month in Vietnam. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. But then where else did you go after that? Um, so this, this trip in Vietnam was a separate one that I just did nine months ago, but the one at the end of 2017, when I quit my job, that was a five month one. Yeah. Let's talk about where'd you go? Where were all the places you went? Experiences you had? Yeah. I landed in Japan. I spent three weeks there. Um, just got to like eat a lot of sushi, meet people and like hang out with them. That was a huge cultural shift. Um, that one's weird because everybody's the same there. And they're so respectful. You feel like you're always disrespecting something. But that's the only place I've ever been where everybody was the same. That was very weird. For me, because everywhere else I went, it was yeah. there was a lot of immigrants, a lot of variety, a lot of and yeah, Japan was not like that. It, very, very monoculture-ish in a way. Very, extremely polite. So polite, you, you can't like even believe rude. it. They yeah. they like recoiled in horror from me because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the exact opposite. When I took my personality test, it says in a room of a hundred, there's one person who's less impolite than me so (laughs) release me in the navy onto japan and i i think back i remember it now yeah they were literally like recoiling in horror from me because i'm so direct in comparison to this very indirect culture that that one is the weirdest one for me and when i was even there the one thing that set it off was i was where i saw all these people wearing masks and I was like, why, what's going on? You know, is, is there pollutants in the air or something? And then I was talking to this Japanese person. And they were like, no, they're wearing it because they're sick and they don't want to get other people sick. And so that was the mind shift. It's yeah. like there, it's a lot more collectivism sort of society. Asia is a little bit like that, but Japan's very extreme. It's the most yeah. collectivist country in the world right now. And so America is the most independent country. Like we're yes. very individualistic. Um, that's something so, I don't think people realize. Yeah. Like people here, like me, 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 my, 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 even going to Canada, different. So Western society is more individualistic and in Western. You go anywhere else, it gets really different. Really, like in Italy, it's all about the family, right? It's like, what do you mean all about? It's all about the family. The family is the only thing that matters. Japan, no, we are the one. It was very, and they are one. No, no shit. Mm -hmm. They really are. They don't even think. In the same way that we think, and it feels very alien to say this, but it's true. Yeah. It's so it's it's literally the polar opposite of it, and, and it's wonderful because you know, just I don't know what's right and what's wrong, but just to experience different cultures and to experience different people, you know, whoa! I'll tell I tell you what I, I love. I didn't think about no fucking know. garbage anywhere, man. These people, oh, I, yeah. It's one of my pet peeves. I, I I get made fun of like everywhere I go, I pick up garbage. Nice. But man, you want to talk about some place that That's they no, they were they would never. And if you do, uh, everybody would say something to me like, "What the hell is wrong with you?" Yeah. Like not like that. Very impolite, yeah. very polite way of doing it. But I love that part. Yeah. Like everybody's so like, "Where am I going to do that?" My what I do has an effect on everybody. I'm not going to throw my garbage exactly. here. Exactly. Yeah, whereas exactly. when I lived in Italy, you know what the Italians thought. 
Well, if I don't throw my garbage out the window, somebody's going to lose their job. <laughs> Talk about one extreme to yeah. another, right? Like <laughs> people are the same everywhere, but cultures are very different, yeah. you know? Yeah. And if you think garbage is bad in Detroit, try in Italy. <laughs> yeah, they throw garbage, at least when I was there, they threw garbage everywhere. And then I don't know what they're talking about, picking it up on the side of the road. Nobody ever picked it up. They just burned it twice a year. They burned the grass and the garbage on the side of the road twice <laughs> a year. That's oh, how God. they did it, right? It's like this ancient, beautiful civilization. You know, and, Hey, we're not all perfect, right? We can yeah. find problems in America, too. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but that's one extreme to the other. So I bet you ate some pretty badass sushi, though. Oh, yeah. It's been yeah. a while. Yeah. yeah. And it's different. Sushi here is like all fried and Americanized. Oh, yeah. Over there, it's like, yeah, just eat some raw fish and some rice. But it's it's nice. Or like the thinnest little coat of sesame oil. Yeah. It's very delicate. Very. Yeah. I like how simplistic yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah, they're insane about fresh ingredients too, which I which I love. You can tell yeah. I cook a lot. Anyway, I won't go. I won't make this a cooking <laughs> show. <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. Um, where'd you go after Japan? Uh, then someone told me that South Korea was cool, so I hopped on a boat and they took me to South Korea. And then it was too cold there. So then I flew to the Philippines. What do you think of South Korea? I never made it there. It's cool. It's almost the exact same. And actually, everywhere I went, there was like temples. And it would say, okay, 1300, burnt by the Japanese, rebuilt 100 years later. And then you yeah, go to another like temple. Japanese, yeah. And yeah, it was like burnt by the Japanese and, <laughs> and all of these burnings. But yeah, the, the people, Koreans are like yeah. the black people from Africa or yeah. the Irish yeah. from Europe, yeah. right? They, yeah. they kind of took the brunt of they all did, the bullshit yeah. in Southeast Asia yeah. and all the conquest. And for people who don't know history, they, they were shit on by a lot of different yeah. people, the Chinese, the Japanese. Yeah, it was, they, Meeting, I know a lot of Koreans because they enlisted in the military a lot. Mm -hmm. They're a lot more Americanized, like capitalistic wise, than the rest of the world. Yeah, like yeah. consumer culture and yeah. work culture, very similar. But I never went there. I just met them. Yeah. So that's why I was like, I was curious. It just seems so Western in appearance. I know it has to be somewhat weird, though. So. Yeah, no, it was cool. And actually, I met the so the guy who told me to go to South Korea was from South Korea, but he was in Japan. And so then I went there and, and I ended up staying at his house for a week, week and a half. Dude, that's cool. Yeah. He just like took care of me. He showed me around. Um, that's very different. different I love that. And, like, and so for me, I didn't experience a big cultural shift from Japanese and, and South Korean, but it's also because I don't have the, like the calibration to be able to tell. Cause there's, subtleties that you won't be able to tell that are you know they they can only tell but um food was good like it was so nice and uh, korean barbecue they yeah. have a whole barbecue oh, yeah. culture about yeah the barbecue. that's how i oh. was introduced into korean culture was through korean barbecue yeah. and that's an easy way to fall in love with, with that kind of thing they got that down it's very different than what you're thinking of almost everything they do in korean barbecue is hot fast yeah. right but it's it's so different and so delicious that I don't know. I love it. If you haven't tried it, go try it. I know it's like a food show now, but yeah. <laughs> it's fucking amazing, yeah. right? You, you tell what I care about: real estate, yeah. barbecue. <laughs> oh, that's. I mean, if, if it's a wonderful place, it is what it is. It's a little bit more pricey, but it's wonderful. Yeah, it's definitely expensive there. Well, they're also manufacturing some badass shit too. So all your screens, like, yeah, probably half the people in the world are using some sort of Korean screen on whatever device they're using right they, they put out a lot of shit too so Hell yeah and cars now where'd you go after korea uh went to the philippines 
Yeah. I went to the Philippines, um, hung out there. They all speak English. So it was very easy, very welcoming people. Um, so I went to like th- two or three islands there, just hung out and just, you know, hung out with more people, natives, stuff like that. Um, then I went to Indonesia and then there was an, a volcano that exploded. And so we were just checking that volcano out and we hiked to the volcano across from it. And we were like putting eggs into the volcano soil and basically warms it up and cooks the egg for you. Dude, that's cool. So you're like cooking it using volcanic activity. Yeah. And so like almost every day we're going to this volcano, which is still active because that's why it's hot. Um, But just weird stuff that you don't get to experience here. Like you can experience there um, real cheap and and just stuff like that. So then after that, I went to uh, Australia and New Zealand and, and then Thailand. And then I came home. All places I, I have not been either. What was Thailand like? Thailand was dirt cheap. The best food, my favorite food was in Thailand. I love Thai food. Yeah. yeah. It, they, they, just, they just have it down. They just have it so good down. Although the Vietnamese, like, I, I think I like the Vietnamese a little bit more, but I think that's because the French, like if, a lot of people don't realize oh, yeah. that most of us eat quote unquote French cooking, but Vietnam is kind of special. Because they were essentially conquered by the French, yeah. and then the French brought their cuisine and culture, and the Vietnamese were like "fuck you," except for this cooking thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's so different than the rest of Southeast Asia. Yeah. It's like its own thing, yeah. and I almost say it's almost like a new way of cooking too. Mm-hmm. But they kind of brought in French ideas and merged it with the Vietnamese. So you can tell I'm really interested in this stuff. So, oh yeah, man, yeah. dude, the food is just. I just love the fact that it's different. It's good food good people it's dirt cheap like you really have nothing to lose other than the fact that it takes 20 hours to get there but for me that's a small sacrifice to yeah. pay for dude people come in this country on boats for yeah. three and a half months yeah. what's 20 hours in a plane yeah, right although it, it does suck taking a 20-hour plane yeah. right i'll be that first person <laughs> first world problems oh my legs hurt i'm yeah. all cramped up in this thing this is bullshit you know? i was just talking to this about uh, about this with someone yesterday and and we were talking about you know the fact that we can do all these things our life styles are better than the kings were or royalty a hundred years ago dude we live are we the same fucking person (laughs) we need to hang out more i was literally just telling jay yesterday he's like we're living like fucking pharaohs and everybody's complaining about it pharaohs didn't eat this shit yeah we have everything you think i wonder how many pharaohs ate ice cream (laughs) <laughs> you know what i'm saying some overwise and some good stuff yeah well, you didn't even really eat ice cream before world war ii because you're too fucking poor and you didn't have a refrigerator yeah. right like people have very like didn't well, I don't, nobody teaches history but we also humans have short memories to your damn point right we are living like emperors over here yeah, yeah. in comparison to history yeah and didn't have yeah. didn't whine about it too okay. even though i'll whine about getting on a plane for 20 hours <laughs> no no you make a damn good point. We're, we're too similar. It's funny how you're like, wait, you're absolutely right. I was literally just saying, Jay. But like, I said pharaohs instead of kids. But same yeah, point. It's the same exact yeah. thing. Yeah. You think they eat this beef? Yeah. I've eaten Japanese beef so good. I bet most of the emperors and tyrants of this world never ate it. Yeah. Yeah. 100% agree. And it didn't cost me hardly anything in comparison. It was like 150 bucks. I can eat the best yeah. four ounces of some of the best beef in the world. Yeah. And what is like the economic value what is the economic value to go across the world and what is the monetary value yeah. right you're paying 
okay, I paid 600 bucks to go to Japan. The economic value is so much more than $600, but that's the, the price tag on it. So that's a value just, buy right there. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> so, I like the perspective too, seeing yeah. things from different ways. Yeah. That's, I think that's been so beneficial for me in my life to see more than one way. Mm-hmm. It's just, and, and see also just gratitude. Just have, just have some damn gratitude yes. for your life because it's easy to feel sorry for ourselves sometimes, especially when things are going wrong. Yes. And we're all going to make mistakes and things are always going to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then you go see places where things are really going wrong. Yeah. Different story, right? Yeah. It's easy to get trapped in your own mind. So yeah. that's what I mean by open your eye to new ideas and new experiences. What do you think? Like, what were your takeaways from doing? Because that's a long time. Like, a lot of people go on trips for a week or two. Or like you said, they go to resorts. Or maybe they go out of the resort for a little while. You kind of went all in on just how do the people, obviously, you're rich American, you know, whatever. But you were experiencing what they experienced to a certain degree, too. What were your kind of takeaways from that, good and bad? Um. Very humbling experience, I'd say. So, you know, you just, I still remember the late, the face of this lady in the Philippines. She was picking up trash on the side of the road and I was going to pick up flip flops because I lost them. And, uh, I saw her face. She was picking up the garbage and she looked at me and smiled. And that just kind of got imprinted into my head because I was like, look at this lady picking up this trash. She, like, I'm, I was really spoiled because I was like, man, if I was picking up trash, I would hate that. But she's like, no, everything's fine. You know, it's all good. So you like see those people and you're like, wait a minute. I have this all wrong. Um, I, so, so just that humbling factor of, of seeing, okay, here are the different lifestyles and here's how they're living and here's how I'm living. And now, you know, who am I to have the audacity to be like, you know, to act like I'm some prince or someone. Who's, yeah. You know, it's just, that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah. You're the same meat popsicles, all the rest of them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I sometimes say you're the same space ape as the red, like, uh, I, I crack jokes like, Oh, you're special desert flower. No, we're, we're all, we're all meat humans. Yeah. 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 Everywhere you go, you're a meat human. You're not a better meat human because of your geographical location, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I guess another really important thing, and really this was the main reason I wanted to go was just to decompress out of the day to day. Like now I realize that decompression for me takes about 21 days. Really? Um, That's interesting. So for me to kind of move, like to forget about my day to day, it's going to take me about 21 days. So three weeks. Um, and then after that, I can spend like a few days, you know, just kind of like thinking and, and planning. And so that's why I like to do that. And that's why I went to Vietnam was because I was like, okay, I want to zoom out of the day to day. And, and, and of course I enjoy the crap out of it, but just to kind of just say, okay, where am I going? What direction is all of this going? Do I still want to continue doing this? Do I want to change paths now? Do I, you know, should I figure out a different move or? So you have to constantly kind of be doing that. And so that's like a monthly, weekly, daily thing, but it's also an annual thing um, where then you kind of have to just, okay, let's put this to the side. But you can't do that if you're so busy all the time. And then, you know, you just keep kind of doing this day-to-day stuff and you just won't be able to zoom out and be like, wait a minute, I might be wasting my time doing this X, Y, Z activities. So Yeah, you didn't do any work on the trip, right? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I would just check out Facebook, look up a few deals, like stuff like that, stuff that's still in the pipeline from the momentum, but um, not actively cold calling or perspective. Yeah, so you really unplugged. I find it very interesting. You, you kind of figured it out. It took you 21 days to like, I don't wonder how long it would, because I, I am kind of have an obsessive personality about things, right? So if my, in my way of thinking, and I know I'm going to have to adjust this, like, I wake up at four thirty. I got four hours in before most people nice. even yeah. start. Right. Yeah. So I've kind of been like, so I've been, this is how I was always a thought too. So it's like people are like, would you, how do you become like this? I'm like, I don't know. I just always remember being this way. Right. So it's like, I could just get four out. If I, every edge I get right. So when I take time off, I look at it as like, I'm peeling time off that too. Yeah. 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 Right. And it creates, um, a lot of, cognitive dissonance and conflict and anxiety when, when I, when I go, because I have this thing, like it's being subtracted now, right? Like I put all this effort in, put all this time on task, get ahead. And now I'm just letting it, I'm just letting it slip through my finger. Cause the way I think is like, how are you going to fucking catch me? I got four hours a day on you. You got to do 12 just to keep pace. How the fuck are you going to catch up? And then I go take a five month vacation Add up all those up. Like, man, I just gave all that. I know I'm going to have to get over it. Yeah. Right. But like, this creates a ton of anxiety, but you figured out it only takes you 21 days and you push past that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, so there's two parts to it. One is a decompression where you're going to be like, okay, what, what is the next phase? So that I think of as just strategy planning. I just put it into my schedule. I need to take about a month. I need, I need to do that. That's ballsy to do right there, right? I need to plan it. How did it feel your first time you did it? Was it natural or did you have to fight yourself a little bit or? It was unnatural because you're outside of the comfort zone. And so any quote unquote vacation is not, it's, it's a, it's a battle with the comfort zone. You want to go out. So the next trip is like, we're, I'm going to try to go to Mongolia and ride a horse there. Oh my fucking God. I would love to go to Mongolia. I won't even get started on the food there, but. But, you know, it's just stuff. So, so it's comfort zone, first part. Second part is, I know Kobe Bryant talks about this, but he talks about the fact that you have a really strong work ethic. So, for example, he he's talking about, okay, normal guys are going to go to the gym. They're going to wake up 8 a.m. They're going to go from 10, 10 to noon. Then they're going to take a break from like noon to three. They're going to go back from four to six, six or, or seven to eight. They're going to eat dinner and then start again. So you got two sessions in. The other guy, Kobe Bryant, all these all these masters at their at their craft, they're waking up four a.m. That you're going six to eight, then you're taking a break, you're eating some breakfast, spend some time with your family, going back ten to noon, taking a break, eat some food, go back two to four, take a break, come back six to eight. You've gotten four sessions, and yeah. the other guys only got two sessions. Yeah, I know. I, now, I, the, I understand. <laughs> the strong part, the strong part about that is that okay, you do it for a year. Now you've got double the stuff in. You do it for two, three, four, five years. After a few years, it's virtually impossible for the person who's trying to catch up to ever catch up to you. It's just impossible. They can't do it because you've gone at such a pace. So now you're almost three. If you've done it for three years, you're not three years ahead of that other person because you're doing twice the work. So, and, and then you have to have a conversation about, okay, is this work that I'm doing putting out results that are magnified. So there are certain things you could do for an hour. So for, for me, uh, before cold calling was the most valuable time of my, the most valuable task I could do with my time. So 
that one hour was the, or those two hours were the most valuable. Right. Um, but nowadays it's, it's changed now. It's like hiring a team and managing people and making sure that, you know, I'm putting all the systems in place. So if I didn't zoom out far enough, I'd still be doing, even though I still do cold calls, I'd still be doing, I'd be okay. I got to make the cold calls. Cause I didn't take time to remove myself from the, from the day to day to kind of think about it. And it, the 21 days is just a personal thing. Some people, you know, they disconnect really fast and they're like, okay, I'm good. But that was how I kind of thought about it. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to outwork everyone. Cause I'm also like a, a morning bird. And so I'm going to do the best I can while I'm here, but I know that I need to take time to zoom out and then re-strategize. Okay. What do I do next? How do I, uh, where, where are my lapses and my faults and where are my strengths and which ones should I focus on? What I need to cover. And that stuff is not a, I don't think that that's a conscious, uh, like, conversation in your own head you can't do it if you're stuck in the day-to-day i think you have to zoom out and some people it might just be three days i think you're right about that um, i have a lot of anxiety about it. okay i'll try i'm gonna have to that might be a while just <laughs> thinking about taking the 30 days off is uh anxiety yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, 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 i math- feel it welling up yeah. <laughs> all i'm doing is sitting here it's like i'm on that roller coaster where that thing that was swinging <laughs> up nothing bad's happening jeremy yeah. you're just sitting in a chair in an office in yeah. troy that's all <laughs> but i'm like 30 days you i was like sweating yeah. like, oh, whew, i'm okay no but like even the, i'm reading books you know i'm listening to podcasts i'm st- I would like to read more. That's a good point. I like when I'm this busy, I barely get through like five, six books a year, man. Like it's hard. I do more audio books, but then you got to listen to it three or four times to get the same benefit. You're you're selling me now. So you spend a lot of time reading. Keep talking. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sell the shit out of me, Hassan. (laughs) (laughs) Sell me this 30 day vacation. (laughs) No, I mean, it's not like a black and white thing, right? Like even with the quitting the job stuff, it's not a black and white discussion. So to go like two days or to go, a month or to go five months. It's not you like you do some introspection. You're like, okay, here's where my life's at. Here's what I want to do. Here's the lifestyle I want to have. Here's what I want to accomplish. And then you start thinking about it backwards. But for me, like I remember I was in a village in Thailand. I met this guy, we were sitting on a bonfire. I'm talking to my friend about, Hey, here's what I want to do when I go back. Cause when I get there, I'm kind of itchy. And I'm like, Oh, I want to do some work. But so I was talking to my friend about this work and, then this guy who got an MBA from Stanford is sitting with us and he's like, Oh yeah, you know, I just got done with that. I'm running a company here in, in, in Phuket in Thailand and we're doing all of this and here's how I'm implementing it and all of this stuff. So there's just connections that I never imagined, but I'm also itchy to come back. It's just, I want to just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I just like want to take the time to plan it before, before I come back. Um, so just, you know, chatting with people, talking to them. There's other business people out there. You can go to meetups. I went to meetups in Japan for business owners and stuff like that. That's pretty cool. Um, just went to meetup.com. I'm going to figure this shit yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Meetup.com is worldwide, right? So you go and, and now you can meet with entrepreneurs and that's all. Wait, did you write that people. shit off? Is that what yeah. it's Yeah, here we go. <laughs> I like that part a lot too. Yeah. Benefit and fuck you government. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not taking this money. I'm doing business shit over here. Yeah. So like in the Philippines, there's cold call centers, right? In Vietnam, they have all these cool like printing presses and direct mail stuff that I, that I checked out. And I was like, okay, if I want to do direct mail, here's there's like envelopes that open up and you can take a picture of their house and imprint that into the envelope. So when they open up the envelope, it's their exact house. And so that's very curated towards them. So 
like that's very out of the box and it's more expensive, but um, probably not that much more expensive in Vietnam. Yeah. If you get it directly from the price arbitrage. Yeah. That's uh, you're bringing that up. That's one cool thing about traveling. You know, it's funny to think about money's not the same everywhere because the economy is not the same everywhere and the standard of living is not the same everywhere. There's, there's some power in your American bucks depending on where you go. So huge power. Yeah. Did you pay in American dollars or did everybody want dollars? Cause my experience back when I did a lot of traveling, a lot of people were like, fuck that. Give me the dollars. <laughs> but it's been a while since I've traveled yeah. like that. So yeah. did you spend like local currency or did you spend your yeah. own money? Uh, so if you're going to go traveling, I'd recommend doing two things. One is set up a Charles Schwab account. You know, they don't charge any foreign exchange fees or ATM fees or anything Dude, around the world. I did not know that. That's so awesome. You, so you do that. Then you can also use Capital One. They don't do foreign exchange fees. So I would withdraw money from ATMs with my Charles Schwab account. So then I have cash. And then anything I could use at uh, at like a credit card store, you know, anywhere a credit card is accepted, I use the Capital One. Because then if there's any issues with uh you know, a credit card being stolen. I yeah. You definitely don't want to do a debit card. Exactly. Yeah. So you yeah. take the capital one credit card, no foreign exchange fees, you're good. And then you take a Charles Schwab bank account card and that one, you just have money in and you, and you withdraw it. And even for the five months, I spent 10 grand total. That was with all plane tickets, vaccinations, visas. Shit. Food. You might've saved money traveling compared yeah. to living in, in America. Right. So, yeah, it was <laughs> cheap. so um, you know, anything really months. bad happen or any yeah, yeah. scary? I know your motorcycle broke down in Vietnam, but that sounded like actually more like an adventure. Yeah. Than, it tur- uh, everything turns out to be an adventure, but there's a lot of negative, like not a lot of negative stuff, but the thing is you have, you become so, uh, used to being independent that you're like, okay, Next week, what am I going to do? Where am I going to stay? Where am I going to go? Who am I going to go with? How am I going to get there? Um, how much do I have to pay to get there? How much should I be paying to stay there? What kind of food should I be eating? All of these questions you have to readdress. So you become very independent, but that also allows a lot of room for mistakes. So even though those mistakes are not catastrophic, but, um, I don't think that there was anything, you know, life threatening that ever happened. Uh, I got robbed one time in Vietnam where I had my wallet out and someone took, uh, Equivalent to a hundred dollars, but that snatch was, and grab or yeah, 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 that was the worst thing that happened in all the times I've ever. Dude, gone. there's a shit ton of that in Europe too. They'll just yeah. snatch your bag and run. I like yeah. that kind of cram I could deal with. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I was like, I was kind of bummed out about that, and when that happened, I was like, ah, maybe I should go home. But I was like, no, I'm not. Like, I can't let that just defeat me. So yeah, you could be uh, stolen from here too. Yeah. Happens all the time. Yeah. And and it was a hundred bucks. I'm like, okay, it's not gonna kill me well it so, happened fast too it wasn't life-threatening and point a gun at you or anything just no. grab and run yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's way different yeah so um, that's the worst thing that happened that's not too bad right it, yeah that was the absolute worst thing that's ever happened to me um there's been a lot lot more good that's come out of everything than, than like i've you know i know venture capitalists now in who operate startups in japan and like weird people that i would never meet but i just know them now and i can be like hey what's up you know I can ask some questions. I can talk to them. And so those connections are far more valuable than. Yeah. So you're still following up with all these people you I met. Mean, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Do you push them all to social media or how do you keep in contact I mean, with them? Yeah. I stay in touch via Instagram and Facebook yeah. and, and some of them I had their emails. So building a global network, Hassan, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Not just a local network, building a global <laughs> network. That's cool. So they're, they're down to earth, but that was the, you know, so I like doing that kind of stuff. 
What's the next? Do you have another trip planned? Are you playing it by ear? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if I didn't break my leg, I'd be in Mongolia this summer. Um, just for, for, it takes three weeks to cross the country on horseback. And, uh, I would add an additional week because I've never rode a horse, but, you know, that's what I want to do. And I'm going to hit up Mark Tomes, his, his wife. Uh, teaches horseback right yeah. so i need to get your learn on before you like go a week or yeah. so or something like i do a little bit dude she'd be um, a good one to learn from too she's extremely yeah. patient with yeah. that stuff yeah. so. so do they have a whole barbecue culture there by the way which i highly recommend yes <laughs> and it's a serious business man this is like the korean one's more more recent okay. this one's ancient oh. it goes back Right, because you think about how they cook, and they got to travel around, and they follow the grass with their herds. Yeah, yeah. It's it's actually one of the few remaining nomadic societies yes. left, and it's so yes. different than agrarian. And so their cooking is very different. I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with this. I follow this guy on YouTube, okay. and I watch every fucking video he puts out on Mongolian food and culture. So yeah, when you're there, make sure you check out. They do a lot of barbecue stuff, a lot of whole animal barbecue too, which oh, yeah. I'm just fascinated with. I want to get to the point where I have enough friends and enough money and all that stuff. Like I'm going to do a cow. I'm going to do a goat. I'm going to do. And they, they got the bow dog, this goat that they literally it's as badass. I'll get through it as fast as possible. Then we get to your, your, your commercial stuff. Yeah, no they leave the fur on. They, they literally pull everything out of the butt and the mouth. Then once everything's hollow, they from the inside, they cut and remove all the bones. Then they tie the end. They drop hot rocks into it and seasoning. Then they tie the whole thing tight, throw it right on the fire, burn all the hair off. So they're cooking it from the inside with the rocks and then from the outside with either coals or like a blowtorch till it's done. Then they painstakingly scrape the entire carcass to get all the hair and all the charcoal off. And then they eat this damn thing. It's such a cool way to, as Bodog, right? I'm sure it's so tasty. Try it. Try it. It looks good as fuck on the video. I've never eaten in my life. It's, it's on my list. That's what you say when guys like, bro, I want to go so bad. I want to go out there. I'm like, let me travel with you guys and eat your shit. I've been watching these YouTube videos <laughs> and I'm obsessed with it, right? Oh, yeah. So they do a lot of unleavened bread dumpling stuff too and the yeah. combination, a lot of soups, a lot of single pot cooking that nomadic way of cooking and living is just so different and alien that I find it fascinating. And of course, you know, barbecue, I'm down with that yep, and whole I animal. Know, like, I'm, I know about that. like, I want to learn, I want to get my Mongolian barbecue going on. So <laughs> make sure when you're there, do me a favor, eat lots of that stuff, take pictures and post it to Instagram for me. Okay. Yeah, man. I'll tag you. Is it, is that, uh, are you waiting for your leg to get better or are you just, re- uh, I have to wait until next summer. Cause you yeah. can only go, it's going to be freezing if I go uh, now. But so next summer, next so summer, summer so I'll do something. 2020. Yes. 2020. Yes, that'll sir. be, that'll be badass. So, oh, yeah. so that's a lifestyle choice you made to travel around. You're going to do that every year, right? Yeah, I want to, uh, eventually I want to do six months a year. See, eventually you could do, you could use your business to, and your real estate business to get you what you want too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's certain things you can do in real estate remotely that can enable you to still make enough more than enough. Um, but you can be more passive. So even if you take half the money, cause you split a deal with someone, but then that enables you to travel freely and live freely and do whatever you want. Then. Leverage mm-hmm. human, human leverage too. Exactly. What does your family think about that though? 
Oh, don't give up half a son. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, now they're used to it because I've shocked my mom enough that what? she's like, "Why?" Yeah, that she's, that she's like uh, numb to that to to me saying like, "Oh, I'm gonna go do this." But uh, in the beginning, they're like, "Oh, don't, please, you know, yeah, don't don't give half the profit away." What are you thinking, yeah. boy? I did not raise you right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Question so actually, their whole thing. I, You're I, doing so well, right up until. <laughs> I remember having this conversation with I forget it was my mom and my dad, but. Uh, it was a few days before I first went on that five month trip, and am I? I forget who it was, who it was, but they were like, "We made all this sacrifice, brought you to America from Asia, and now you're going back to Asia." Yeah, <laughs> I, I could only imagine. Oh, fine, you're gonna leave this great country. Yeah, so, I'm coming back. I swear to God, mom. This was when uh, our new president got elected too. So there was that conversation of, "Hey, are you going to be able to get back into the country?" And so I was like, oh, we're good. So my mom made me get my citizenship before I left. Good. Because we were able to. And I think that was smart. Yeah. Don't want to get tied up in politics. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That could, uh, that's, that's never a good thing. Well, I'm glad you did, too. Now you're ours. <laughs> Hands off, world. All right? We got him. He's ours. <laughs> you can't have him back. All right? He can go visit. But, uh, but that's it. He still, has to, he still has to come back. So you're doing this wholesaling. At some point, you pivot a bigger fish yeah how did you decide to start cold calling or why how and why did you decide to start cold calling on commercial property and let's talk about at least two of your commercial deals because i think it's very interesting how you did it. i got a little insider information i'm gonna let you tell the story and i don't know a lot about it either but obviously we talked a little bit about it before yeah. in another event how did you do that and why yeah so um it came back to a wholesale deal I did in 2018. Um, and so there was this portfolio of houses and I was like, okay, I can buy these houses or I could wholesale these houses and then just try to buy one building that would generate the same amount of revenue. And so the whole thing was, okay, it'll be easier for me to wholesale this. And I made a good chunk of money on that. I moved that and I said, let me take this as my seed money to find a bigger and better deal just in one place. Um, so I think that's somewhat of a natural evolution for most investors. Um, we're talking, if you don't mind me saying it was a six figure wholesale yeah. fee, yeah. right? Yeah. So. so it was enough cash for me to, you know, just be like, okay, I can take some time. I can find a better deal. Um, I think so. you're on a point too. What's the difference between going out and wholesaling and making a shit ton of money and then spending it frivolously on life expenses versus yeah. going and getting a job and making a lot of money and spending it on, yeah. especially tax disadvantage. They hate wholesaling. Yeah. They hate flipping. Yeah. They really come after you for yeah. their, their money. You got to take that money and put it somewhere that's going to do you a lot more good passively and mm -hmm. in, in the long term. So that that's what he's talking about, yeah. right? And gotta make sacrifices and you gotta gotta build up your nut, go over here and put it on the next big thing. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And to anyone who might be thinking about doing bigger deals, what I would I'm not a tax advisor, so don't, you know, sue me. But we already gave him the legal disclaimer. Yeah. So but what I was advised to do is we set up an S Corp to do the wholesale deal. Um and that decreased the tax burden by a good chunk of percentage points um so i think it was like five to seven percentage points that i saved just by doing that s corp instead of an llc or sole proprietorship yeah. so if you're doing a bigger deal just you know talk to your accountant about that that's good that's good advice yeah go see your cpa yeah. go talk to your your tax attorney lawyers you yeah know, it might so. be worth doing something like that so um but yeah i if you're not going to reinvest it 
if I, if I wasn't going to reinvest it, I would have just bought those houses. Um, but I knew that, Hey, buying these 13 houses in different cities and things like that, it's just Pain a management, in the ass. Yeah, yeah. management headache. So I imagine mm-hmm. it seem to be very similar. You're probably not all that great at managing things, right? Would you call yourself like a good property manager Uh, or I've I'm a systems and I'm more, I don't know. I'm not good at that. I just don't like thought so. I think you're better at it than me, but there's enough similarities here. It was like, yeah, that 13, that's not to your advantage. 13 houses. If you're not great at it, better to go get one. Right. Yeah. And so that was the whole thing is like, how am I going to deal with this hassle? And will that hassle fit into my lifestyle? Right. And if I'm leaving, how can I manage those? Um, that's a good point too. So, begin with the end in mind. Yeah. So, so I was like, okay, those, you know, I sold that thing, I think to the investors for 700, it was probably worth eight fifty day one to them. So they were still, so they got a damn good deal too. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to, you know, rehab them out and then kind of start flipping them slowly. So for them it was, it was good. And for me it was good. So, and then, so then I did the deal. I went to Vietnam then I came back. So that was a one month trip. I came back. Um, you were I, plotting that whole month, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, how do I do this? So then I got the co-star list for anyone that wants to do commercial deals. You have to get the co-star list or you have to get access to co-star. Um, and then you start marketing to those people, whatever your um, way is. Co-star, by the way, is a commercial MLS. Mm-hmm. You can go sign yep. up for it. You got to sign up for a yearly contract. Yep. Yep. Um, it's, I don't know. It's not that expensive, but it's a little pricier than your normal MLS is, yeah, right? You're looking at like three fifty a month, two fifty exactly. to three fifty a month, exactly. right? Yeah. So conservatively, you're going to pay five grand just up yeah. front. You know, forty five hundred, five grand. Very but, powerful tool, though. If you're yeah. looking to do, you're looking to do that thing, and you just type in Google CoStar, and you'll see, you'll see what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. So, and then, and then the next, if you don't want to spend that kind of money, go to Reonomy. Go to Reonomy. Reonomy is a backup. Doesn't have the best amount of data, but you'll get what you need. Um, especially if you just want to kind of get started. So then I have that list. Then I just, I'm starting to market to these, to these properties. And I find this guy out of New Zealand who I get in touch with his broker who sold it to him or helped him buy it or did property management or something. Um, and so I stay in touch with them. And then one day in like a few months ago, I just got a message saying, Hey, uh, are you still interested in buying it? I'm like, yeah. Sure, yeah. I'm glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was about to reach out to you next week anyway. So, um, so then we go ahead, I go ahead, tour the property and it's a good deal. And so I'm like, okay, this is where I can use my money to, to basically buy into this. So my strategy on that deal was going to be, um, I brought in two separate people. Oh, three separate people. And it was all for relationships. I, ne- I didn't need any of their money. I just wanted to learn more and leverage their experiences. So one guy was an old boss, Harvard MBA, smart guy. I was like, okay, I want him on board because in the future it'll be good. Um, second guy owns like a hundred or so units in just Metro Detroit, has his own property management company. I said, look, pitch into the deal, put in some money. And, uh, you can, you can, we'll use your property management company to manage it as well. So that would relieve that burden. And then another person to kind of just make sure that, uh, from the, uh, just experience side, 
they, you know, they weren't definitely like apartment syndicators or anything, but it was basically a person who, who had experience in our inner group. So they were like pretty well known and it would be good to develop a rapport and further the relationship with them. So that was that part. We do some due diligence and find out that, Hey, this deal is not as good as I thought it was. Um, but it was still good enough for me to wholesale. So, so what was the difference in the, the numbers? What did you get? Yeah. Is that curiosity? What'd you get wrong? Right. Yeah. So what I got wrong was the fact that it was an older building. It was built in the sixties. And so it wasn't necessarily deferred maintenance, but it was things like how do we split the utilities, which would be hard. Um, you could implement rubs, but, um, and, and rubs is basically to, split utilities between different tenants. But even then it, we ran into some complications and the CapEx on, on a few of the items was a little bit higher. Like we need a new parking lot. CapEx um, is capital expenses. Yep. Um, so like putting a new parking lot in the next few years, you know, if we do re- new concrete is like $6 a square foot. Yeah. Concrete, fuck foot. concrete, man. Jesus. So yeah. Those, like a few of those things. And so I knew that I could buy it at like it was mismanaged so i had it under contract at a four percent cap rate or a three percent cap rate so a value add move yeah Yeah. exactly and so if you're going to be doing all this work cold calling you only want to find value add deals and so i knew i would be able to get it up to about an eight percent cap rate but that was not enough value for the amount of work so now that would tell me okay i have to take 12 to 18 months you have to strategize how we're going to do this and how are we going to basically flip this or, you know, add this value to refi most of the money out? And for me, the amount of work in the cold calling and the rehab portion of it was not adequate enough or what was too much work for the end result. It wasn't enough value that was in there um, as an active investor, right? So I wholesaled a deal to some guy um, out of the country or out of the state. And um, basically, you know, I had it under contract. I forget. What price? Five hundred ish, and and we sold it at like five seventy something like that. And I had another person who brought me the buyer, so I split some stuff with them. But um, oh, you know, it was like fifty grand something like that. Um, so that's a good wholesale fee. (laughs) It's not bad. It's not bad wholesale fee. So I always think about it, like, how many fucking listings do I have to do to get a 50 grand? <laughs> <laughs> I start counting in my head. I'm like, motherfucker, that's a good deal. <laughs> but also, like, the, the, the buyer, you know, they were just not experienced as I would want them to be. But also, I sold it to them at, like, a 2% cap rate. So it's, okay, I get it. But, um, you know, not very well like they didn't understand the nuances and and the fact that they had to bring cash so i had to kind of deal with that inexperiencedness but it paid off at the end and you know they didn't understand the fact that as a wholesaler i don't consider myself a wholesaler but as a person who was assigning the contract i had done a lot of work up front and they were like hey why are you making 50 grand right they were like questioning the fact that i was making money so i was actually supposed to make more and they negotiated me down at the closing table to say look you don't quote unquote deserve this. And so by the way, if you ever do this to me, I will yeah. spend the rest of my life fucking you up. If I get to the closing table with you and you go to renegotiate yeah. the deal, I don't give a fuck if you're my mother, my wife or my kid. Yeah. The rest of my life, I'm going to look for opportunities to fuck you up just so we're all clear. <laughs> I despise yeah. this kind of it's relationship 
ruining yeah. if you fucking do it with me. And that was the that was the sign of an inexperienced person because they're only looking at that deal. Yep. So you know now the next time I get a deal, okay, you're not. You fucking nailed it yeah. right there. You're well, grateful for him. You walked him through. You did your job. Yeah. But are they the first person you're going to call when no. you get another? Hell no. no. Hell no. So Don't yeah. count other people's money and don't pull some bullshit renegotiating at the table. He had you by the balls, though, right? Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't make 50 grand on that with a guy from Michigan. Did so. you figure out how to avoid that in the future? Yeah, a few things. Um, again, get all the legal advice you need. But here's a few things that I would recommend. One – you have to figure out where the earnest money is going to be held. If it's held at a title company, you're not getting that shit back. Yeah. yeah. You have to think about that. So there's other ways, you know, talk to a lawyer, but figure out where to hold that money. Um, second thing is sign a non circ. If you're going to do bigger deals, even if it's a house, maybe, but if you're going to do bigger deals, first is an NDA. So they can't expose it to other people. Non disclosure. Yep. And the second is a non circumvent, meaning that you can't, not do the deal with me and go directly to the seller and go buy it from them because I was the initial one to find it. So if my due diligence period runs out, I lose my EMD, which at that point was 10,000 bucks. So I'm out my 10,000 bucks and they go in from the back and they say, Hey, look, we'll do this. Right. So sign an NDA and a non circumvent. Um, and third thing is figure you can, it depends how the buyer is. If they're experienced, I wouldn't hide the purchase price that I have in the contract. If they're inexperienced from now on, I'm going to yeah. not expose that. Dude, you yeah. just nailed that one right there yeah. too. So yeah. those are the two, three bigger things. If you don't want to get screwed in the ne- negotiations. Cause some of this is just human, right? People it's see psychology. how much you're making. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. as you nailed it, inexperienced, mm-hmm. like if you're not in business yeah. and you haven't been successful a while, yeah, they're like, what the fuck did you do for this, man? What are you, are you stealing from me, bro? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You, I'm stealing from you. You want this? That's yeah, how they treat you. The you. Yeah. yeah. And so, so part of it is just being human, too, by the way. So, yeah. yeah. And, and it's natural. So you have to find a way to alleviate them from that burden because they're just human beings, right? Yes. So you have to take the responsibility on yourself and say, okay, how do I alleviate that? If they're active investors, in, in our space, they'll know well enough to not mess with you because they're going to ruin their rep. If they're inexperienced, you know what to do. Well, and they probably understand the value better too, yeah, right? Like exactly. an, somebody inexperienced doesn't know how many cold calls you made, yeah. how many times you followed up, how much yeah. money you spent on lists, mm-hmm. the number of deals that failed and died and you got paid nothing on, yeah. right? They don't add all that shit up. They just go, well, I'm buying it, bro. I was going, going to do all this for like, yeah. what? like, I don't think you saw the shit before it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. The, the business model is 97.5% failure. Okay. Exactly. I, the successes need to add up. Exactly. No, I, I agree. Yeah. So that deal didn't work. Um, so then, you know, my whole thing is like, okay, I don't want to be a wholesaler. I just want to buy deals because I want to figure out a way to get passive income still. And so at that same time, I found this mixed use building. Yeah, uh, this is wanna, such a cool story. Yeah. Move on to that. Yeah, no, yeah. Cause okay. these are kind of somewhat going yeah, at the same time. Yeah. Which is, both. which I think is really cool, right? Yeah. Cause you're like, wait a second, I got pivot to this one. Exactly. Yeah. So that's when I was like, and actually, I wasn't even going to try to wholesale the apartment complex because. I was like, you know, I was cutting it pretty thin to the line because you have NDAs signed with people and you can't like be blasting stuff out. So you need to be very careful on how you tread and make sure that you do it legally or that you assess that risk correctly. 
um, to say, okay, what is my potential downside and what is the, the benefit? So I talked to my lawyer. He said, look, man, you got, if you can make 50, make 50, take that risk. If you're going to only make five, then don't do it. That's an excellent point. You had 10 at risk, but your return was 50. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you're yeah. doing like risk versus reward. Exactly. We got a green light. It's exactly. worth the risk. Exactly. So, okay. So then I'm going through this very emotionally discharging experience of wholesaling this property to this to this inexperienced investor. Yeah, like a fresh pirate trying to hijack you at the closing table. That's not fun. <laughs> so then I find um so then I had also contacted this other guy in Berkeley. Um and so he had a duplex and that's why I contacted him. And he was like, well the duplex is attached to this building that I used to run my business out of. It's a three thousand square foot building, retail slash office. Um you have to buy that as well because it's on the same parcel. So I was like, okay, well, I'll give you an offer for them both. And um, this one I don't didn't have an NDA on, so I could I can talk about it in a lot of detail. So basically, um, he was trying to sell it for three hundred and twenty five thousand twenty eleven. No one bought it. I came around and I was like, hey, I can't give you three twenty five. I can give you two sixty. Okay. Um, actually, I started at like two forty, but I was like, okay, I can do two sixty. So I think the parcel right now is 375, 400 is what the value is as is. Um, and so he said no. And then, you know, we tinkered for a little bit, go back and forth. And eventually he calls me one day as well. And he's like, Hey, um, let's meet at the property. I want to talk to you more. So I'm like, okay, we go. Do you have a strategy to, it sounds like you had a little bit of a strategy to frustrate him a little bit too. Right. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I kind of just say, Hey, look. I'm noticing some similar, like it's like, I do this quite like the person when you can't get what you want. Sometimes you just got to change the game and frustrate them and wait until they act. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing is follow up. So you got to be constantly in front of them because you need to basically the job. If you're doing marketing, your job is not to get the deal. Your job is just to be the person they think of if they want to sell. Yeah. That's your duty. Yeah, because there's no crystal ball saying you can know exactly when they're going to do anything. So you just got to be in front of them for when they do. Yeah, too many variables you'll, you won't know. And if you try to know, you'll just mess up and then you'll be frustrated with yourself. So your your job is not to buy deals. Your job is just to do the work that you committed to do. And for me, that was the cold calling. That was other stuff, just reaching out. So that was my job. So I just made sure that I stayed in front of them. So that way, when they were ready, they knew that, hey, I was the guy that was going to buy it and that they didn't have to talk to other people. So, um, that's an excellent strategy, sir. <laughs> so they, so he calls me back and we go to the, to the building. I walk through the building. I'm like, this building's totally trashed. We got to, today we'll have to put over a hundred thousand into it, um, with the whole parcel. So it has a two car garage, it has a duplex on there and it has a, uh, um, the 3000 square foot retail building. So they're three separate structures. They're all on in downtown Berkeley on 12 mile. And so, um, he's like, okay, I'll sell it to you for 260. I'm like, okay, we get through our due diligence. I realize there's no way I can pay 260 in cash. One, I don't have the cash. Uh, two, That's always a problem. Yeah. And, and I did have the cash until I spent it on another property, but uh, <laughs> so, so then I was like, okay, I don't have the cash. And two, there's too many repairs. So I could technically still pay him cash, but then I need to figure out where's the rehab money going to come from. Right. So nowadays I write these letters. I, I distill my thoughts into a letter so I don't have to verbally say it and mess it up. So 
if I ever need to talk to someone about the price and now I actually, the, the one deal I'm working on right now in Utica, um, I still haven't signed a PA with him because we're there's, he's that kind of person where I know I can trust him. I don't know I can trust him, but he's a person I would trust. And I told him, look, I never re- renegotiate after you and I sign something. So that's one part, but let me do my inspection right now. So I'll pay for my inspection. We'll do it. And then let me just tell you what I can give you. So, um, so both of them in the same way, I write out a letter and I say, look, here is the, it's a twofold part. One is here's how much I can, there, there's two parts to a rehab. If I'm going to own this building for buy and hold one is what do I need to do immediately? And what can I do in the future in the next, you know, near future, five, 10 years, whatever it is. So the part that I need to do immediately, I'm not going to pay for it because you own that building. You owned it and you took all the profits out of the building and those are required now. Things like, hey, the windows are still functioning, but I can replace those in five, 10 years because they're old. I'll pay for those out of my own pocket. So I break those down into those two sub subcomponents. I like your strategy here. Yeah. So so for the Berkeley, I tell them, look, there's about, you know, 75 grand of this, which you just like, you just neglected it. I never thought about doing it this way. I've done that this way with like back taxes, back mortgage payments, like past blight tickets. Cause yeah. I always pitch that it the same way. Yeah. Like, you took that money. You just didn't pay the things you did. Now you have to pay it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But this other long-term deferred maintenance that isn't is, you know, that's different. That's yeah. a different, I never, that's an excellent, that's a good idea, man. So th- that's just what I, you know, so I, I write this nice letter. It's a good I, reason too. They can see it's reasonable. I'm seeing the reasonable in exactly, this in your strategy. Like, exactly. well, yeah, how can I argue with that? I'm having a hard time arguing exactly. with it now. You want to find, yeah. that's why I don't verbally say it to them anymore. I write it out very clearly. And um, so, so basically I said, okay, here's that part. Then the second part of the letter, it's all on one page, so it's nothing complex. But second part of the letter is, you know, I understand that if I asked you for the whole rehab portion as a reduction, so in this case, 120,000 bucks, it's going to kill our deal. So here are the following ideas that I found that would be reasonable for both of us. So now there's three offers. First offer is to say, look, if I can give you cash, here's how much I can give you. ABC offer. Yep. So yep. there's the 265 minus the 75 uh, repairs. So, okay, I can only give you 190 or something. Offer one. Um, and then that will give me enough money to do the rehab with the current capital standing that I have. Option two is I can give you a down payment and you can give me a few years to pay you. I don't discuss interest rates. So I just say, look, if you give me 60 months, I'll give you 300,000. So instead of now getting 190,000, you're getting actually 300,000 total. So you're getting $110,000 for waiting 60 months. So each month you're getting actually about two grand a month almost, right? And you're getting a 0% interest loan. I'm getting a cheap loan. So my loan, if I bought the property for 265, which we still kept as a purchase price, um, my, my loan is at three or 4%, um, you know, totally non-recourse and five years and, uh, and it's amortized over like 18 years, 19 years. So I just do all the back end math that I need to do. Um, so half of it is principal, half of it is interest and, and it's working out. So, um, so, you know, they can go ahead and then, and then option C is if you have any other ideas, let me know. So that kind of, I really hope no sellers that I'm buying properties from listen to this, but they won't, uh, but, but why would they argue with you? Look how professional you're approaching it. You're giving them options. You're letting them know the reality of the situation. You're exactly. letting them know you're still interested in the deal yeah. and you're trying to find a way that works for both parties. Yeah. So when you're, I don't see how that would be unattractive to somebody like yeah. that's person who's more than likely 
you're more likely to get a deal done with that person than your average person. And that's yeah. And so far I've done it two times and it's worked. Yeah. A hundred percent of the Dude, time. the ABC, especially do the groundwork. It's funny. You talk about writing it out. I never did that. Mm-hmm. Like all the way wholesaling when it became an agent, I accidentally, when I had too many deals to negotiate over the phone, I started to do more negotiating over email and I did. I only negotiate via email now. Nice. Period in report because when you tell them the thing, even if you nail it, I'm really good at nailing. I got a lot of practice speaking yeah. in public. I can do it live, but then even doing it live and not fucking it up, yeah. they have an emotional reaction to it. Yeah. What I discovered through writing it and submitting it, you don't have to have that emotional reaction. They have it. They usually don't respond right away anywhere. If they do, then they respond again. Mm-hmm. And they always read it worse than if I was ever to tell them. Yeah. Like whatever the worst possible thing they could read into it, they read into it. And for negotiating, that is work to my benefit. Like I, I just don't negotiate anywhere else. Somebody yeah. calls me. I was like, okay, well, let me talk to the seller and I get back to you. And I respond via email. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they try and negotiate by phone. I'm like, okay, let me talk to the seller. I get back to you. Yeah. Push it right back through email. Yeah. Right. Cause you it took me a while to, I, I accidentally stumbled into it, but like, you're absolutely right. When you submit the reasons why and everything in writing, whatever your quote unquote counter is or, mm-hmm. It's just a better way to do it. And they can see it like in person. And actually, frankly, I try to, I can't do it all the time because it depends on the seller, but I try to meet them in person and I try to gauge their body language. And I say, look, here's how I feel about the deal and everything I've just told you, here it is in this letter. And you can just, you know, think about it and just let me know how you feel. Um, so, and it's never, I've, I'm bad at hard selling, Cause I'm like, Oh, I don't know how they're going to react to it. But for me, it's worked because it's so reasonable that, you know, no one's going to be like, well, you're totally off base here because I'm like, well, here are all the repairs, you know, and you know what the property needs. And I have them come with me to the inspections. So when I do my inspection, my inspector is there. I still have a third party inspector. And then I just walk with the person and they walk with me and we listen to the inspector and the inspector says this. And then I ask a follow-up question. That. Yeah. And so they know everything that we just saw. And then I document all those things. And then I say, look, here's where it's at. Um, so, well, I think of it like tools too, right? Like I work for Steve and I learned for two years and I learned like how to hard close. Right. But it's like yeah. a tool in the belt. You need the hard close for the people who are making it impossible for themselves to make a decision. Mm, yeah. You you need that tool in your belt to deal with that person, but not everybody is that person, mm-hmm. right? So the, if you go and people are like, I never hard close. Well, you should probably learn how to sometimes, exactly. yep. right? Yep. Oh, I never soft close. Well, you really, most of what I do is soft close. This yep. podcast is a fucking soft close. How much softer could it possibly <laughs> be? You know, I don't come out and say I'm the guy who you should work with, but I think I do everything. I know that's a, that's yeah. a soft close. Yeah. It's very powerful, but it doesn't work on everything either. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so it's just like you put these little tools in your belt. Yeah. You, you discovered this like writing tool and like reason, like if I, if I walk them through, they expect, I pay attention to how they are. I craft everything and I put it in writing and give it to them. That's, that's, that's an excellent tool to have. I discovered it on accident. Um, I didn't think about, well, I like, I'm going to do now more how you break out the repairs. Yeah. The shit you should know, you know, you already should have done yeah. versus stuff that's like amortized over the, you know, yeah. the cost of the house. I like, hey. that's a great idea, yeah. man. That's yeah. a, 
that's a savage move. Break, break it out and say, well, these ones, of course, you're going to pay for it because you should have fucking paid for them. And you kind of did. And you took a loan out against them. And yeah. Now you got to pay it back. But yeah. these other ones, I will take. I that's, can do Yeah, because I know that in 10 years, the roof has to go. You don't have to pay for I'm going to add that now. tool to yeah. my belt, Hassan. Thank yeah. you, sir. That's a, that's an excellent move. So, um, no, but yeah, I'm, I'm still figuring out how to do the whole hard sell thing. Maybe I need to re-listen to those podcasts again because they're, they're helpful. I um, never would have done it if I didn't go out with Steve. Hmm. It's so uncomfortable yeah. to learn yeah. how to do. <laughs> I don't want to try and paint this picture like you just go out and learn how to do it. It's like saying go out and learn how to hit a 100-mile-an-hour fastball, right? No, it's not a simple thing to do, and you feel very uncomfortable doing it. But what I had to do was just copy Steve. Yeah. So I went, I went everywhere Steve went. I went, and I just watched Watched, watched, and then finally I repeat, repeat so many times, right? Yeah. So that's how I learned how to do it. You yeah. just have to get used to being so uncomfortable. Like I'll give you the best one Steve ever taught me. He gave me the uh who do you think's gonna who who do you think's more likely to close, me or him? I've used that so many times to get deals, but when you do this one, mm-hmm. it's so uncomfortable to do it first, but you gotta nail that shit. Yeah. And you have to be acceptable with the answer. And believe it or not, nobody's ever told me the other guy. So it's, I can't work a hundred percent of the time, but it has with me. And it's for a certain situation. It's when the seller says, well, the di- the guy, this other guy is going to give me some amount more mm-hmm. and you you want to blow past this price objection, right? Like fuck what this other guy is going to pay you. Right. Like, and you want to say, so, okay, hopefully I've built enough rapport. I've set my appointment in the way that proves that I'm professional. Yeah. I've done my walkthrough in a way that, so when you go to do this, you have to set the stage for it. Right. And I blew past every other objection, except for this guy who was going to give him three grand more. And I go, look, who's more like, who do you think is more likely to close me or him? And you shut the fuck up and you stare right at him. And he goes, you, and you just push the PA to it and go, well, sign just blow right past that price objection and go and you hard close the person. Cause you have to make them right. Then you've blown past every other that all there is now yeah. is this $3,000. You can't do it in the beginning. You got to isolate all the other objections and get to the one price objection. Mm-hmm. And then to get them over price, make them think about the other person not closing. Yeah. I learned that from Steve times. and that's a hard, hard close. And I watched him do it a lot of times. And I remember the first time I actually did it was with Tommy O'Neill and a deal I wholesaled him and he got to witness this thing too. And it was like the first real opportunity I've done dozens of times since. Right. And I just, boom. Well, who do you think is more likely to close me or him? It was like five, 10 seconds. He goes, you push. And this is on top of a garbage can, push the PA across. I'm like, we'll sign the PA then. And he fucking signed. And I did dozens of times after that, right? So oh, yeah. it is valuable so to learn how to hard how close. You, how do you know which person will accept the hard close and which one will it'll just blow up on you? How do you... Well, well you have well, to isolate. It has to only be a price objection. Okay. Right? Yeah. So timing was right. He liked he liked me. I set the appointment professionally. Yeah. I followed up. Yeah. I was 15 minutes early. Yeah. I had comps. We did the re- repair list, everything else like that. What he told me on the phone was wrong, wasn't what was wrong. Yeah. So I had good notes. Well, what you told me on the phone was, this is why I can't give you X because mm-hmm. you told me this. It turns out, no, the basement's flooded and you didn't tell me that. 
it's not a huge problem, but we're going to have to snake it out and do, you know, so you have to isolate all the other objections and the objection just has to be about price at that point. Cause, and if you gave them the three grand, you know, you'd get it, but we're not giving them the three grand. So you isolate every other objection. And then when it's finally just the price and every, you know, he'll sign if you just gave him the 3000, but I don't want to give him the 3000 cause I want to make more money on the wholesale deal. That's when you do it, but it only works if you're professional in your follow-up professional on your call showed up early. I had the PA out in front of me. He nice. walked the rehab list. He saw everything he, I brought, I was like, well, well, you said you'd give me X. Well, you, you didn't tell me about the flooded basement. You can't do that if you don't ask the questions ahead of time too. Yep. Yep. Is there anything else wrong with the property? Right? So it's really just if everything else and you isolate everything else, right? He wanted fast. I can do that. He wanted to close it. What a convenient location. Like, I can absolutely do that. It was literally just the price objection. And that's when you pivot. It was like, well, did he write an offer on it yet? No. Well, who do you think is more likely to close, me or him? You. Sign the PA. Hell yeah. And they do it. They do it. And so far, it's worked 100% of the time I've done it. But you can only do it when the only thing left it's just- is the price objection. It doesn't work. A lot of people will try and jump the gun. If you do it early or your follow-up was poor, mm-hmm. right? You're, yeah, you're you weren't unprofessional. Yeah. This doesn't work <laughs> if, you, if you didn't set the stage, right? Yeah. So you have to be – That makes sense. You have to be a, a certain kind of person. And then the odds are the – I think what this close is, is the odds are the other person wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know how to close. And they couldn't get him to say yes, Yeah. right? So I learned that from Steve. And that I – mean, he wasn't the one who invented it, right? But he's the person who taught me how to do that one. And that one, that one does work. So the hard closes do have, but I do way more soft closing than I ever do hard closing. Cause it's like this small 10, 15% of the population who just refuses to make a decision and they give you every excuse in the book and you whittle your way down to just one last fucking thing or two things. And just, and so now I'm like, look, you and I both know if I leave today, nothing's going to happen and you're going to go back and you know, I'm not going to buy it. You're not going to sell it. You got it, you got a hard it, but it's not a huge percentage of them that you do this on. So I don't think you're losing much by not having it, but it would add something. Oh yeah. If, yeah. if you had it for that 10 to 15% of the time, but it just takes practice and you got to get used to feeling uncomfortable until you yeah. don't feel uncomfortable anymore. Yeah, it's all, right? it's all feeling uncomfortable yep, until it gets comfortable. And now I know when I just go, no, of course I'm the best person to do it. You should be signing with me, right? Like, of course, I'm going to get this thing done. Then that's it was like, who's more likely to close, me, me or him? Mm-hmm. Well, you sign. Eventually, somebody's going to say him, right? Because maybe there's some other badass out there. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> you're against Steve at that point. It, it was somebody, <laughs> you know. Like, so you, you you can't win them all, but it's what's one it's one more tool. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's it's all about the two balls. All right, so back back to the deal. You work in this deal. You talk him down. Okay, so uh, A B C. Yep. So now he's. So this one I did in person um, with him, and uh, we're at his house, and he's like, okay, I'll do option two. I'll do the land contract. And he just said, I'll take B. Yeah, and and so I was like, okay, that was that was easy. Um, so then I'm like, okay, now I have to get 60 grand of this guy in the next uh, 30, 40 days. You're under the gun. So then we closed the apartment complex, and so the closing was actually perfect because I closed it on the – I forget what exact date, but the next day I closed on Berkeley. Um, so I 
put it into my account and just send it right back out. I can't tell you thing. how much I love that. Yeah, you don't want to take the money and spoil yourself, man. Like multiple ways. You put there. you put it on the line. You got ten grand at stake. You got a deal yeah. you need money for. Yeah. And you got some buyer trying to fucking steal your money on the oh, wholesale God. side. <laughs> and both dates are looming on the horizon. All right. That's what I, I like that. So that's that's the part I like more. Like this is this is now like a high stakes poker game. <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna fucking blink first? Not me. Yeah, Not me. And and halfway through wholesaling the complex, I had in some ways consoled myself because I was like, okay, if I mess this up, I lose my ten grand plus the five grand in attorney's fees, inspections, and everything else. So I'm out fifteen. But was it a loss? And the answer I told myself was no, it's not a loss because now I've learned everything that I just told told you in the in the lessons about like the um, the NDA non-circumvent, all that stuff. I basically paid, I would have paid the 15 grand just to learn that. Um, but now I include those in my contracts and everything just so I can protect myself in the future. Um, but you know, worst case had it all fallen apart, you, you just figure it out. You can, you can do something else. You can extend a timeline or you can borrow money or you can, well, at some point something. you do have, to, I, I think there comes a point in somebody's career there's always this decision, right? Mm. Maybe it is a decision to quit your job when you don't have as much money as you would like decision to move forward on a deal when you're not sure if you're actually able to do it right there. There's always like a risk versus reward question that pops up. And at some point you have to take, you have to take the risk, right? Like, can I really get this done? I think this comes to self-limiting beliefs a little bit, right? I think you'd be surprised what you can do I don't want to say necessarily back yourself in a corner, but it is a little bit like I'm going to do this. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm going to take a swing at this thing. Sure. It's not a hundred percent chance. Right. But I think I can do it. I know I can do it. Right. That, that, that moment comes, I think for everybody, it's not always looking like this and maybe it's not quite as high pressure, but you nailed it. Like what's 15 grand. I know it sounds like a big number to people, but it's really in the grand scheme. Yeah, no, it's not that big. But you yeah. you decided like you know what, I can do this. I can do this. And what's the worst that happens if I can't? Mm-hmm. You know. Now that was pretty hairy. I, I gotta like that's that was probably you probably had a few stressful days there, right? Oh my god, man! I was waking up at night. Yeah. Just- Waking up and I was like, is it sold yet? And I was like, no, it's uh, not. I just dreamt Still that. going. Like, oh, I thought I closed on shit. Fuck. Yeah. I got to go do this. Yeah. So, I mean, every day. Though I definitely earned that one for sure. Hell yeah, you did. Like, you earned it before you got it. But sometimes there's yeah. deals you got to earn twice, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I paid for that one. I paid for that one. So, But then there's opportunity. I think what people don't, when they look at that, there's opportunity costs. You were looking at the opportunity costs too. They're like, what am I going to lose? Well, what's my lost opportunity? Yeah. That's a big ass opportunity. Yeah. Guy actually said yes to option B. Yeah. Yeah. Holy shit. That's the, this, uh, in some ways that's per- better than the cash deal. Exactly. Right. Like exactly. shit. There's a lot of like, yeah. all right, time to ante up, right? I'm going to do this thing. And then you pull it off, which doesn't always happen, but it happens more often than people think if they'll just agree they can do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you have, did you have that moment or did you just go on the calculator or did you talk it out with your parents or was it just like a gut decision that you decided I, I, I can do this thing for both the deals? Yeah. 
Because I know you were thinking about bailing, right? How many times did you think about bailing? It was just the beginning, just the beginning, and then told my lawyer was like, "Dude, you can if you're gonna make this one, just do it." So your lawyer had your back. Yeah, he yeah. had one. He had surround so, yourself with good people. Yeah, you gotta find you gotta find a good team because without him, I it'd be too hard to pull. I would have told you the same thing, but it, it means more coming from somebody who actually knows what he's doing <laughs> <laughs> in that part. I'd be like, "Fuck it, you can do it. I believe in you, son." <laughs> so no, he he said, "Look, you can if you because by that point we had a." a general agreement that we would be able to pull it off and i'd you know just put out a feeler to that guy and um so that one worked out and i'm and i'm gonna see where that deal goes now in the next two years i'm gonna say okay did i analyze it incorrectly or rents did rents yeah this is not over higher? this is really just the beginning yeah, of the yeah, pain right yeah. like and low key i want to go buy that from him one day if you know if he messes it up so um, swoop back in on your white horse, save then, the day. <laughs> and then at the closing table, I'm going to be like, hey, man, I, 20 I, less. I fucking love you even more for that. <laughs> no. It's coming back. Yeah, I'd come back. No. Come back. I think it'd come back. How much did he want? How much did he not negotiate off? Uh, 20, 25 grand. I would double it. Yeah. Whatever it is. Like, yeah, I'm here for. I had a tattoo artist who charged double for cover ups because he's like, you know what? You should have paid this the first time and you're not getting out of it. This is good. I'm, you're gonna you're gonna get two things here. You're gonna get a lesson on buying value, and I'm gonna get paid twice for fixing somebody else's mistake. And I remember I was 19 in the Navy, getting all tatted up. And I was like, "That's some fucking wisdom for a tattoo artist, right?" I wasn't even thinking deals. I wasn't thinking real estate. But I was like, you know, he he he's got a point. He's got a damn good point. Like you already fucked up, mm-hmm. and you're gonna pay now or you're gonna pay later. And you didn't want to pay then. Well, now you're paying. And I, you know, I think, I think that, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And that might just be a crazy kid off the streets who doesn't fucking take that shit. I don't know. But if you've never had it happen to you, it is a very bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. It's like choking back vomit and you got, but you got to keep your eye on the ball like you did, right? Can't let some piece of shit trying to take 22 and a half grand from you derail you from your plan. Yeah. But if it ever comes back again. Oh yeah, no, it's, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna forgive him, but I'm not gonna forget. No, him. yeah, like yeah. it's it's game on. He probably he, they would be the ones to call you back and beg too. So, <laughs> so you're um, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, then then both of the properties closed, and um, so now I'm working on the mixed use building. We're trying to figure out okay, what's the because it's more of a, a complex kind of situation. It's not like okay, we'll rehab it and then we'll refi it and it'll be good to go. It's, um, you know, at least for the retail and office portions, it takes two years of seasoning periods just to get a loan on it. Um, but the fortunate thing is that my residential income and the fact that, uh, my debt service is pretty low, kind of just, I'm covered. covered Yeah. It's rented now. So like your payment, you're covered with what it currently quote unquote is worth and paying. Yes. Yes. So So, that's your backstop. Yeah. So worse, I'm not putting money into the deal on a monthly basis. That was a thing. So now I have to find the strategy so even like when when you walked in before we started the guy was on the phone and he was like okay so we're trying to work out a deal um and so that's with that with that same one with with berkeley um by the way we're doing this at a saturday at the uh, keller williams somerset office in troy so yeah he was working on deals on saturday too for all you pikers <laughs> out there I like to spend weekends alone with my family you know i think there's some value to that but man like yeah. Opportunity cost too. Yeah. I think that yeah. that might be the theme of this podcast. Yeah. Like if we look from the story, like your immigrant family to what you like, what is the opportunity cost of not making the decision? Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. You, you, they could have just stayed in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what was the opportunity cost of staying in Pakistan and not coming to Canada? Yeah. And then you see what I, like the, that might be the entire theme of this podcast: yeah. opportunity cost. Yeah. There's always a risk, but what is the opportunity cost of the yeah. thing that you're yeah. you're analyzing too? Yeah. What's the reward you can get? You seem you to be very good on that point. You're a lot clearer than I was in in my career. Right. It's it's hard to think this way sometimes. It takes a little practice. Right. Easy to be scared up on the machine swinging you around, but what's really what is, what's really going to happen? What is the opportunity cost? Yeah, uh, that's... I think that story is great. I think that's great for so many reasons. Like pivot, not not the right one. Would have been easy for you to just take down the non perfect building too. Yeah, yeah. Just as I really wanted to, because I, yeah. like, I just want to have the first one. And just, but it wasn't quite car. right for you. And yeah. you looked at it, you're like, man, it's not enough. Yeah. And then like, okay, I'm gonna wholesale. Oh, this one's enough. Yeah. All right, high stakes poker time. I hate that negotiating at the table bullshit too. You got all my blood up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think when it happened, I'd called uh wall Raven and, uh, and I was like, Hey, what do you think? And he was like, put me on the phone. With him. Yeah. I was like, no, I'm not going to put you on the phone with him. I'm not going to connect. You. <laughs> that now you got around the Donna deal with here. Yeah. I tried to avoid this, but yeah. look what you make me do. <laughs> and, no, no, seriously, one really important thing was, you have to – I have not mastered this in any way, but figuring out how to control the deal, not legally. I mean in terms of yes. conversation, yes. who's in control of the negotiations and how are you behaving. Oh, my and God. So, and now I'm just scratching the surface of that. I but. love you, Hassan. <laughs> I, I lose this – the people who hire me and don't understand negotiating – I'll give you a good, this is a basic example of what Hassan's talking about. When you negotiate, you, if you don't negotiate a hundred percent in earnest, you are always open to losing positional dominance in a negotiation. What does that mean? Well, it's the people who say, well, let's just see what we can get. Well, I'll counter back 300 rejected. All right, I'll do 270. You are now out of the driver's seat. Just like that, Mm -hmm. you are out of the driver's seat. If you were willing to take 270, but you countered 300, that this is, whether you get it or not, I'm talking about losing your position of power and negotiating because it's always the one Mm -hmm. willing to burn it all down and lose who wins. Right. So the second you do something that damages your position in negotiating, you now you still might get the deal, but you lost your power in the negotiation. And when that happens, the likelihood of getting the deal drops dramatically. Exactly. And trying to get people to understand this is very, very, very difficult because it seems counterintuitive. Well, why don't we just try? Why don't we just, well, there's a cost to trying. Yeah. A lot of people don't respond well to try. Like, what's when that's why I ask them, what's really the bottom line here? And then let's figure out how we get to it. Let's not like fishing when it's serious and you really want it. Fishing is not the way to go because when you fish and then you're wrong on it and then you want to come back to it, you, guess who's driving? Not you. Not you. Yeah. Now, you might still get the deal, but that's not the best way mm-hmm. to negotiate. Yeah, and, you got to, and I forget. There, there's this thing, at least in like the business world, the corporate world, it's like the Porter, Porter's five forces. Um, 
I have not heard of this. It's interesting. Yeah, it's, I'm learning all sorts of things. It's like some framework that they use to understand uh, a person's like competitive advantage and negotiating advantage and things like that. So there's two parts. Like, so if you're a seller or you're a buyer, you definitely want to have the upper hand, right? And it goes back to your conversation of what am I willing to basically quote unquote burn? Are you willing to burn the ships? Yep. Yeah. Um, so if if you're willing. If you don't have anything to lose, you will be in the higher position of neg- negotiating. And so in real estate, maybe that means that, hey, you have a backup offer if this guy doesn't take your higher end offer. Yep. Maybe that's the way you get around. I it, do right? that all. Yes. You figure out something so that way your back is not to the wall. Um, and so, for example, on the complex deal, my back was in the wall because I didn't have a backup buyer, even though I said I did. But I didn't. Yeah. Right? So so um, it's like you have to figure out a way to be in a position of power. So you're not going to get someone else is not going to drive. Um, so that's that you win a lot more when you do that too. Yeah. I've never heard of that one, but if you haven't read, do you know anything about game theory? I've heard, I like, we, that's what I studied. It, but yeah. yeah, it's kind of like the prisoner's dilemma kind of stuff. Yes. Too, really. I didn't realize it would help me in negotiating, but yeah. if you think about it, that is negotiating. Yes. Yeah. Like it took me a while to put those pieces together. Like I learned it early in life and I read it and studied it and it definitely helped me in things. But like when you actually put your negotiating goggles on it, like actually they're, they're one and the same really. Cause we're playing a long game. Yeah. This is a long ass game. Everybody thinks this game is short or this, it's just this deal. Yeah. Right. But that's, it's just so not true. That's not just this deal. You got a reputation for negotiating, got a reputation as a human being. Like it's a long ass game. Yeah. So when I finally figured out game theory negotiating, really same thing. Like, I'm, although, what would you call the plan again? Uh, Porter's Five Forces. I'm going to go look yeah. it up. Porter's yeah. Five Forces. Because yeah. yeah. you got me curious now. It yeah. sounds like a little bit more structured than just read this book on game theory <laughs> and figure it out, you know, um, which, which is kind of what I did. So, yeah. man, this is a great, this is a great podcast. Oh, yeah. We, we covered a lot of things in here. So now you closed on this thing and you're yeah. figuring it out, right? Yeah. And you got how many years before you got a refi or pay it uh, off? Five years. So I got five years. So your time horizon's good too. Yeah. So, cause you're going to be able to get past all, all the obligations of waiting, right? Mm-hmm. Two years, I think, yep. right? Yep. Yeah. Oh. Also, if you can't get it two or three years, it gives you a couple of years to go sell some shit, make exactly. some money. Like, okay. Yeah. So, so you got a good backstop as well. Trying to plan it. Yeah. Cause now it's at the point where I need to look ahead five, 10 years to be able to how do I need to structure the capital so that way it's so that way I don't miss a balloon payment? Um, and so now the second land contract that we're working on in Utica, that one's it's going to be due a few months after this one's due, right? Because they're both five years, and so I have to figure out okay, what is how do I structure the capital to make sure that it's there in five years, um, or refi it, or what if hey the market crashes and then there's no there's a debt crisis and I can't pull out capital, which um, happened. Yeah. <laughs> For those who weren't paying attention, it happened to Detroit in 2007, but it happened everywhere else, end of 2008, 2009, where if you had cash, yeah. you can buy everything yep. five, 10 cents on the dollar, yep. and nobody was giving out loans. Yep. What do you do when that happens? Better have some sort of idea, right? Yeah. yeah. You win if you have cash. So, you do. Um, and then, I mean, even like, I know a lot of people talk about crashes and stuff, and none of us really knows what's going to happen, but there's so many variables that you really can't tell. All you can do is just kind of be, take a balanced approach so you have enough cash and you have enough assets that it's, it's good. Like, for example, okay, the markets crash and burn and there's a debt crisis. You can't get cash. So you need some cash. But what if there's hyperinflation and 
it was horrible for you to have cash and it was better for you to have it in assets because now those assets are going up. Like the seventies and early eighties. Yeah, That's exactly. how Arnold Schwarzenegger got rich. Yeah. He said he was the luckiest man alive. He figured out how to buy real estate and then inflation blew up yeah. and the value in all of his properties yeah. went up and he sold after inflation went down and made millions of dollars. So there's no, you gotta like the, as an investor. So, I mean, I, there's this really cool stuff with Charlie Munger. Um, Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's partner and he talks about like this really cool thing, which has impacted me a lot of, of basically what he calls a lattice work of, of like mental models, um, which is basically like you create this web in your head of different, uh, subjects. So his main theory, not his main theories, but one of his points is that, Hey, not all the wisdom in the world is held within one academic department. So if you only know finance or you only know accounting, or if you only know physics or engineering, or uh, if you only know negotiating, or if you only know one thing, you're going to fail or you might not fail. You'll still win, but you're not going to win as much as the people who understand the basics of almost every subject. And then you drill down into one that you want to specify on, but you need to know, like even in investing, like you're, there's concepts you can take from physics, like critical mass and all of these things. And then from engineering, like, you know, engineers build a bridge for the worst case scenario. How many possible 18 wheel trucks could be on that thing in the worst case scenario, right? So that's a big concept from engineering, but you can apply it to uh, your capital structure and your business or, you know, there's all these different things. So like psychology, you need to, you need to know the big concepts in psychology. So that's what Charlie Munger says is like, okay, you need to, so you, so you have to read books on physics. You have to read stuff like that. So you understand that stuff. And now you have this framework in your head and you're going to, you, no one's going to beat you. Well, in the military, they call it combined arms yeah. and combined arms is a force multiplier. Meaning can you sit in the infantry? Yeah. Can the Navy and the air force and yeah. other special operations oh, support yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Can we use information? The, these are all force multipliers when you can combine multiple. In this case, we're talking about, you know, education and experience. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a good example. I've been seeing a therapist regularly for the last three and a half, four years. Mm -hmm. And I tell her all the time, she's my business coach. Mm -hmm. She gets a, she gets a laugh at it cause she's not the necessarily the capitalist pig that, uh, that, that I am, but you know, you know, I am, I'm a capitalist pig. And as I understand myself better, it helps me understand other people better. And it's made me way better at negotiating. Mm -hmm. So right to your point, learning about psychology and how humans, cause you think you're learning how Jeremy thinks, but I'm a human too, right? You're learning how humans think. And then I'm like, holy shit, I've learned so much doing that. Like to your point, that's made me a way better investor yeah. and negotiator yeah. and real estate agent just yeah. all across. So yeah. of course, Charlie Munger's a smart dude, right? And there's no way he goes and piles all that up. Like, yeah. And, and as an investor, that's your job. Your job is to put all the pieces together. You are, you are literally the last person that gets paid. Right? Yeah, because if you're right, you're gonna pay all your contractors. You're the end of the line. Yeah, so you need to know, hey, how's all of this piecing together? And even if like no one knows everything in a hundred percent, you know, like what's what's gonna happen for a hundred percent, but you need to in some way build a framework in your head saying, here's my fallback plan if this happens. Here's a plan if this happens. You can't even get every single possibility, but at least if you get the big ones correct, you know, like like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they just say. We don't want to be, we don't want to be smart. We just consistently want to be 
not stupid, something like that. I messed that saying up, but it's basically that you just not, you don't, you don't need to be really smart to do this. You just need to be not dumb. No, I think that especially the way they analyze risk, because they're looking at risk and opportunity cost, right? All the time. Yeah. And I, that's a hard thing to do. It takes practice. Yeah. Because the scary things are fucking scary. Yeah. Then you realize, wait a second, they're not that scary. And actually, it's exactly what I need to do. Yeah. So what does the future look like, Hassan? What are your, what are your goals? This is, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think this is a great podcast, too. It turned out better than I, th- than I thought it would. And it turns out all these Sweet. people were right. So everybody <laughs> annoying me to have you on the podcast. Thank you for finally making oh, yeah. me making me do that. It turned out even better. But what is the future? What is What is Hassan doing? And what does Hassan need? Whatever shout out, whatever, if you have an ask or whatever, now's, now's the perfect time for it. I mean, um, I'm just trying to grow, keep learning, connecting with people who are doing bigger things than I am, or even if they're not doing bigger things than I am, I'm willing to kind of give back. Um, I definitely am building a team for, for my commercial deals. And so I, I think at the, at our last mastermind, we were talking about hiring people. So I had my final rounds of interviews on Monday, and, uh, Ooh, final round. So there's yeah. no room for one. If, if there's one person listening, who would be the perfect person, Hassan? Uh, if you want to sneak in at the end and the finals, or if it doesn't work out, who would be, if they were listening, how would they know how to reach out to you and be that perfect person oh, that you're for looking sure. for? Um, well, you can email me. So it would be Hassan, H-A-S-S-A-N, at brighterestates.com, or you can look me up on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram is uh, H-A-S-S-R-B-C-S. I'll put it in the show notes, folks. Yeah. That way you can go and so, just click on yeah, it. You can just message me. But, um, you know, even if you're like looking for some help or something. Who would be the perfect person help. for you to hire, though? Um, Maybe they're listening right now. Yeah, I realize that I need someone who's kind of like a nurturer. Um, so I don't – I'm not looking for someone who's, who's looking to, like, take over the world. I want someone who's kind of looking to support me in my – in my progression and uh, is willing to force multiplier. Yeah. Yeah. So I need, I, I, you know, testing around with the organizing or how to structure it has been, has been tricky, but I've realized that, Hey, I need someone who's, who's kind of not looking to take over the world, just looking to kind of, Hey, I'm maybe at a different place in life and I just want to be in a supportive role and collect a check on a weekly basis and also be a part of the team where I get part of the gains. Um, so I'm basically offering that, um, but they're essentially just working for me. So that sounds valuable. I think you might also want to expand a little bit. Mm-hmm. You might be able to bring on someone who wants to take over the world. Like I think Steve yeah. got, and Steve and Joe got a lot of benefit yeah. from working, but it, it would require the right person. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to pitch this out here a yeah. little bit. Even if you want to take over the world, one of the greatest things I did is when I step back mm-hmm. and decided that the best way for me to learn what I need to know is I need to do uh, basically subordinate myself to someone who knows way more than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm using this language particularly because it's going to rub them wrong. And I want them, to, want them to get over it. Right. What does that mean? If you pick the right person and you give a hundred percent, what's best for Steve is what was best for me. Yeah. What was best for Joe and Renee is what was best for me. So I think you can maybe expand a little bit if that person can adopt that that mindset right like i couldn't before 2014 i just wouldn't have Mm -hmm. right but because i made some pretty serious mistakes i had to go all the way down i was like okay what do i really know and what i don't know what i decided was the best way to do it is just go 
subordinate myself to someone who knows way more and kind of that like Japanese master apprentice yeah. kind of yeah. like everything for the master, yeah. right? Like, yeah, this works if you have a good person. Mm-hmm. This doesn't work if you have a bad person. So you got to make sure you're like, Asan's a good person, obviously. But if you're listening at home, like, I, or I'm in San Diego and how do you do this, right? You, you got to make sure you pick the right person because not everybody yeah. appreciates that thing and they will abuse it. But if you get the right person, believe yeah. me, I got way more in knowledge and experience and expertise, even though I made damn good money than I ever received in money. And if you can think of it that way, you might be able to expand it oh, yeah. just a little bit more. But I was I also agree. told him, I also told Steve, I give him a minimum of two years and I give him two years. Yeah. And I told Joe, I'd give him a minimum of three years and I gave him three years too. Nice. So I made commitments yep. Yep. that I kept yep. no matter what. So you might be able to expand it to someone like that. Maybe there's somebody like me oh, out there all fucked up, yeah. re- like hungry, ready yeah. to learn. Yeah. And, um, if things had gone differently, I might not, ne- I never have left either one of those. Mm-hmm. So I could have seen myself for a long time working with Steve forever. Yeah. And I definitely could have seen myself with Joan Renee. And I actually, I am still working with Joan Renee. I just changed the relationship a little bit. Yeah, the structure. Right. And- Cause these are really good people that I still really like and admire too. So, oh, yeah. and, and they did a lot for me. So it, that might work for you too. Maybe. I agree. No, no, you're, you're right. If that person has that mentality, right. And you exactly. could tell because I think Steve could tell. And I think Joan Renee could tell, right. Like there was never any doubt mm-hmm. that whatever I was doing was against them. It was always for, for the team. And for, you're, yes, you're in exactly. Whatever is required. I did a ton, especially on the dealer group. I did a ton of shit. I fucking hated. Mm-hmm. Didn't say a word. Just did it. Hell yeah. Just showed up, just showed up, just showed up and did it. That's it's what was required to be on the team. Period. End of report. So, you might be able to find somebody like that too. Nice. So well, I'm looking. Unless you snag a nurturer, I think there are a lot of. If people are being honest, there are a lot of people who are better number twos mm-hmm. than they are ones. Right? Like everybody can't be number one. That's just not how this shit works. And our personalities aren't that way too. Yeah. And I think some people like me, like I don't think I could have been a number one without being a number two. Go through the right because I was I wasn't figuring it out on my own. Yeah, just have to be realistic about. It. I just wasn't. I wanted to. I had the burning desire, mm-hmm. but I just was. I just wasn't getting there. So I had to make myself number two before I could be could be number one. So for some people, the only path to one I think is by being two or, or starting at ten and working your way up to two. Yeah. You, you get what I'm saying? No, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. So it's an iterative process, right? Just learning and seeing. Okay, what works? What doesn't work? How can I structure it? How can I not? Oh, I think there are a lot more people like me, right? How many Steve Jobs or like oh, yeah. Ron Wall Ravens or yeah. Joe Deal? Are they really out there, right? Yeah. But I think there are plenty of people out there who can learn mm-hmm. if they can humble themselves to just going and doing doing the thing, yeah. right? Doing the thing the team needs, yeah. You know, and I did. I, that was very valuable for me. I actually learned how to do it. So don't count those people out. Just because they got some ambition, you know, if they got the right attitude and their attitude is what's best for his son, it's what's best for me. Yeah, then it works because interests are aligned. That's the whole thing. I'm like, okay, how do I? Well, and they make a commitment, right? Like, okay, how many years am I going to sink into you? Like I, like I told, I'll do a, no matter what I'll do two. Mm -hmm. I told Joe and Renee, no matter what I'll do three. Cause I I told them right on day one, I was like, well, how long do you think you'll do this? And I was like, I'll give it at least three years. Cause I also know I'm, I have a bad attitude when I start things. Mm Mm-hmm. I get very frustrated. If I would, even at two years ago, 
I hated being an agent. (laughs) (laughs) I fucking love it now. Like sometimes you just have to do something for a while and get through the stuff Mm -hmm. and work through the things. No, actually, I really do love this thing. So you have to try things too, I think, because things are hard when you start new things. And it's not a lot of fun. And it's different from, especially I came from wholesaling, making way more money, and then to stop and go do something completely different that was so different. Like I had to take a pay cut for my first year too. Yeah. Which, so that's like stepping back again after I started starting going forward. But I don't know. I think there's some value in that too. If you're not, if you're not naturally the number one, don't count yourself out. You might be, first of all, you might just be the best number two there is. Yeah. Like period end report. Like, and you can't have number one without number two. Let's just yep. face it. That, that's so true. But also your path to number one might be through number two. Yeah. So just trying to broaden the horizons there. Phil. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think you're that person and you like what Hassan has said today, maybe you should reach out to him. It might not be too late or maybe for yeah. something yeah. in the future too. So sweet, man. Thanks. Anything else? Anything else you no. want to share? Oh, thanks for having me on here. This is it's a badass fun. podcast. We're, we're calling this is a great pod. We're calling this one Opportunity Cost. Oh yeah, let's do it. We're going to name this one Opportunity. It's very rare you have a podcast with such a strong line through the whole thing, and this was not planned either, which is what I love about it. I don't plan out my podcast. I do put a lot of things together that I know I want to talk about, but I like it to meander and go. And this is exactly why. If I planned this, it wouldn't have happened this way. Yeah. And it just worked out perfect. Well, folks, thank you, Hassan, for coming on the podcast. Guests, please go check out what he's working on. He took time out of his valuable Saturday to be doing deals. We're hanging out by ourselves here at the Kelly Williams office in Somerset on a Saturday. So go check him out. He's actively looking for mixed use and apartment deals to partner on and to buy in the Southeast Michigan area. Reach out to him. He's also looking to hire some people. We just talked about that. Hassan at brighterestates.com. And I will put this in the show notes along with his Instagram and his Facebook too. So please do go check it out. Um, He does take time out of his day to do this. And I think he gave you a lot of value. So, all right, folks. And if you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, wherever you're at in this, I think there's something you do first and foremost. Easiest thing everybody could do is rate and review on iTunes. It's super simple. And you'd be surprised how much that helps. Also, you can share this podcast, right? Hassan wants to get this out. I want to get this out. I want to grow. You could also hire me to list and sell your house top dollar. If you don't know, I have a huge challenge going on. I'm part of Bold. I'm drinking all the Kelly Williams Kool-Aid right now. And Jay and I have some goals. And my goal is to take a listing a day for 50 days for Bold. And this is a multiple goal thing for me. Not only do I want to increase my production, I want to set a good example for Jay. And I want to hire new agents. And as far as I know, and I think this is accurate, nobody's done that at Bolt. So I set a goal that, as far as I know, nobody else has done to help with recruiting. So what am I looking for? I'm looking to list and sell any house in six counties around Southeast Michigan. Okay. And Jay's looking for buyers. So if you're an investor buyer, if you're a retail buyer, if you're looking to list and sell, if it's fucking ugly, I'll list and sell it. If it's fucking pretty, I'll list and sell it. I think you know what kind of aggressive. That would really help me out, and I'd really appreciate it. Um, you can also refer some people to me. Maybe you're not ready. All right. And, of course, uh, if you've got any wholesale deals, hook them up. Send my way, renegadedetroit.com. 
If you're ever interested in attending any of the local meetings, which I think are very beneficial, I think Hassan made a good point for networking today, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors. And if you're not here, just wherever you're at, if you're in San Diego or if you're in Oklahoma City, whatever, just go to meetup.com, type in real estate investors or real estate investing or wholesaling, whatever it is you're interested in, and just start looking and see what's available, right? Or you're going to hit me up on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy Burgess, and you could always reach out to me at 313-600-2133. Shout out to Joe Randall, mortgagesbyjoerandall.com for this awesome podcast table. Thank you, sir. If you're looking, he's a conventional lender. He can do FHA. He can do lots of things like that. If you're looking to buy, yeah, a lot of people around here use him. He, he works with a lot of investors. Yeah. He can handle your regular retail stuff too, he's by awesome. the way. He's, but, a, he's the only guy I use now. Yeah. So you, you go to mortgagesbyjoerandall.com, two L's, and they'll be in the show notes. And thank you for helping uh, support the podcast, uh, Joe. All right, as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. Why the fuck are you listening to this podcast? I say entertainment, only half joking, right? What's the thing that made you listen to this podcast, all right? Pick that goal, stick with it, and do something every day that gets you closer. Don't give up, all right? Folks, till the next podcast or till the next meeting, crush it.